Just King Things is a podcast where we read the books of Stephen King in publication order. As these are largely horror novels, they often deal with complicated and disturbing topics. A list of content warnings is available in the episode description. Howdy, friends and neighbors, and welcome back to Just King Things, the show where we read and talk about the books of Stephen King in publication order. I'm Michael, and with me, as usual, is Cameron. Hey, take a look at this uh, real quick for me. Okay, all right, I'm uh, uh, taking this object from you. It's a Polaroid. Oh, hmm. Now, what do you see in there? Hmm, I see some sort of grinning cat. No, no, that's not what I see. I see some sort of skeleton. <laughs> oh no, it? a skeleton! Just one. It looks blast processed <laughs> in real time. I, I was assuming that it was a family of skeletons having a barbecue. Mm-mm, this is a deep cut, Michael. Uh-huh. I'm not. I'm not. We're not going to another bit. Oh, okay. It's a deep forums <laughs> bit <laughs> about the powers of the Sega Genesis. You don't think? You don't think that looks blast processed to you? Uh, sure, it's blast processed. <laughs> Sounds like you're no selling me after I no sell your part of the bit. <laughs> Two can play at this game. Oh my god! <laughs> so it's like you've taken the 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 top hat off of the king in a chess match. <laughs> I can't believe it. Oh, God, because I don't even know what bit you're trying to sell me on. I was not a Sega uh, person. Oh, no, there was a uh, bit on the Something Awful forums about 15 years ago, maybe not that long, in which uh, they talked about, it was on the creepypasta thread in the video games subforum. Oh, okay. And they would mm-hmm. talk about one of the creepypastas was purposefully bad, and it talked about blast-processed skeletons. <laughs> because they looked so good. They were so photorealistic. <laughs> there you go. Now everyone's in on the bit. Hope you all have a great time. <laughs> go go forth into the world with that knowledge. Yeah. <laughs> oh, God. Uh, there was a creepypasta thread on the games forum? Yeah, for, that's where uh, Godzilla Still the Best 1979 oh, comes that's from. that's right. Okay. That's a great creepypasta. Yeah, well, that's the one that I know about. I didn't know anything about the blast process skeletons. Uh, well, it was one that was written to make fun of all the good ones. Yeah. <laughs> uh, or quote-unquote good ones. Uh, this is also, like, they were for talking about things like Ben Drowned and whatnot. Oh, uh, right. Pet Scott, that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's I like just... one of the few forum threads I read after I stopped visiting the forum. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I just hung out in like the the general ghost story thread, not the specific creepy pasta thread. This MF love ghosts. I do. I love me a ghost, <laughs> and you know what? Nary a ghost in this damn book. There's not a single ghost in here. There is a ghost. There's a ghost. Pop Merrill tells a story about a guy who took a <laughs> photograph of a ghost one time. <laughs> That's why I said nary a ghost. Right? The ghosts oh, are see. like mediated. They're beyond the mm-hmm. story proper. Right. Uh, 
Today we're talking about Four Past Midnight from 1990. Yeah. You read this book before? I have. I think I read this book one time. Mm Mm-hmm, same. And uh, I never read it again. (sighs) Because, uh, uh, it's not very good. No. It's it's got some interesting stories. No, there, uh, nary a story here. Let me see if I can use this right. <laughs> nary a story here has something uninteresting in it. Mm-hmm. But uh, they can't sustain themselves for the two hundred pages necessary. Mm-hmm. Uh, they are an idea. This is like it's it's again. You know, it's something we've talked about a little bit in this kind of Kingian time. You know, he's really, as we leave the 80s and get into the 90s, he is very content to take a night shift style story and stretch it out to 200 pages. Yep, that's that's kind of the, the diagnosis here is that like each of these stories has uh, like, if not a pretty cool, then at least a serviceable idea. Like, I would like to read a story about that idea, but then not all of them really deserve the length that they get. And... I mean, this is the the anomalous quality of uh, to actually back up a little bit. This is a uh, return to the format of different seasons, uh, mm-hmm. which was a, a previous episode. Uh, and back then it, we we marked it as like the first one of these where King will release a book that has like four novellas in it. And uh, different seasons was very, very different from what's going on here. Uh, here, the, the thing about different seasons is that, uh, a lot of those stories, three out of four of them really, were King trying to reach into kind of different generic spaces, uh, outside of the normal, like, well, the night shift style, uh, uh, concept horror, uh, more toward, like, uh, uh, mainstream sentimental fiction with like the Shawshank Redemption um sort of a a grittier grounded uh exploitation thriller with apt pupil and uh like honey dipped nostalgia uh with the body um yeah it's it's him doing basically three different popular genres mm -hmm. right so like the Nazi exploitation film the the prison film and then uh the kids movie Right, I and mean, then writing those as, as types of stories, but they're both very prominent 1950s, 1960s film genres too, or not both, but all three are. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then there's, uh, yeah, the 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 fourth story, the odd one out, that's just like uh, an extremely mannered, uh, eerie story, uh, uh, the breathing method, mm-hmm. um, and that's the one that is like closest to a traditional Kingian horror story. Uh, all of these uh, in Four Past Midnight are and he he says this in his what does he call it is it just a a a forward or is it just an introduction anyway Mm -hmm. he says this that uh these are all just kind of like his regular horror stories yeah straight up midnight an introductory note (laughs) straight up midnight straight up midnight uh what did you say a minute ago anomalous something uh what you said you said the term anomalous something else with an additional word. People who are listening will know because mm-hmm. Michael said it a mere few moments ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, but as soon as you said it, I thought that's the name of your uh, like BBC Two TV show. 
that yeah. you had in 2002. Michael Lutz's anomalous emanation. Oh, okay, yeah. I, I guess I said that. I don't remember saying anomalous anything, but... You did. Okay, huh. And I, wanna, I don't I remember it at flow. all, and you don't remember half of what I said, so... It was two words, and I only remember one. That's true. <laughs> That's probably not very good, is it? <laughs> I'll keep it in mind, though. I'll listen for it in the edit. Um, <laughs> It'll be there. Oh, I guess maybe... There were at least two words. <laughs> uh, anyhow, uh, yeah, so this is like the return to uh, that the, the four novella format, um, except this time they're all kind of uh, traditional Keenan horror stories. Uh, and one of the things that I think is just really remarkable about the, about these is that I think only Stephen King could get a book like this published. And I also don't quite understand why other than he likes the format maybe in some way, uh, because as in the previous book, uh, actually maybe more so than in the previous book, each of these things could have been published on their own because they're they're actually much longer than a typical novella. Like these are the length of like a very short novel, like what would have been um, a, like a paperback original, something that came uh, first. Like this is how the Bachman books actually were first uh, published, uh, with the exception of Thinner. They were all published published first as cheap paperbacks. Uh, the sort of thing you'd like grab off a stand as you were going through the the bookstore, like in an airport or whatever. Um, mm, a stand, you mm-hmm. say? Hmm. Uh, but anyhow, yeah. Is the wait? Hold, is that what the stand is? Yes. You know, every time I I keep being confused about what the stand is. Is it just a paperback book stand in an airport in a Hudson Books? Yeah, I think so. Hudson News. Yeah. Steve, you fucking scam. <laughs> it's like most people wouldn't notice this. Franny Goldsmith stand in <laughs> <and> JFK. <gasps> JFK. Actually, it's in the Denver National International Airport, and we all know what's going on there. We've seen the mural. Yeah. Actually, we we went there, and I didn't see the mural. Did you see the mural? Uh, I'm trying to remember. I think when when did we do that? That doesn't make any sense. I remember seeing a mural, but it was for a Quiet Place Two or something. <laughs> That's that's actually the big conspiracy about the Denver International Airport. It's that it's always been about a quiet place, too, but no one knew what that was until very recently. Yeah. <laughs> and so in the 90s, when they were looking at that mural, they were thinking, oh, my God, someone holding their hand over their mouth, uh, some sort of creature, some very declarative sentences about how many there are and how to hurt them. <laughs> uh, what would we do? You know, like, I don't understand. This must be an Illuminati conspiracy. But in reality, it was just a... A very uh, provisional ad for A Quiet Place 2. Yes. Oh, <laughs> uh, uh, yeah. So I don't know. The, we, we've got these four stories. Uh, just the economics of this, I would be interested in knowing about. Like, what does uh, King have to say to like his agent and publisher and everything to be like? Because clearly this is this is actually this is the fundamental kind of question I have. Clearly, Steve does not have a problem just like publishing multiple books a year like the, like this right. is the issue here like so i don't know why it's these particular stories that are the ones that get like collected together like i i, I have an inference to make about this that is that is research-based but ultimately i cannot give you a definitive answer would you like my inference yes yes Okay, so I was reading Castle Rock Newsletter. Uh, as we've talked about several times, Castle Rock Newsletter was a fanzine uh, that was made that was kind of pseudo-official in the sense that, like, Steve was aware of it. He did interviews for it. Uh, 
you, you did some research and you thought maybe the editor might be kind of related to the family in some way. Uh, I think it's uh, maybe a thing that you have launched. The editor was uh, King's personal assistant. Oh, okay, got it. Uh-huh. Got it. So, so part of like the Kingy thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so I actually went through the lo- the last issues that exist are kind of fall into winter, nineteen eighty nine. So before this book, right? Because this is ninety. So, uh, is yes. True. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, and so I went through those final ones just to be like, all right, well, what was the pre-material about Four Past Midnight? And there was also a really lengthy Steve interview in there uh, that's like. I don't know, two full newsprint pages. It's really long, but ultimately not very uh, informative about Future King, although it's kind of summative of what, you know, his thoughts about himself through the 80s. Because in this, I think in 90, in 89 or 90, Steve turns 41. Uh huh. Um, so, you know, he's kind of, he's crossing 40. Mm-hmm. And uh, the, the only thing I learned, or one of the, the key things I learned, or key things I learned from that, is that, you know, King promised the sabbatical that was supposed to take place in 88, 89, 90. You know, mm-hmm. he was going to spend multiple years not writing anything. Um, and we know behind the scenes, he was planning on using that time to kind of get sober or figure out his life in mm-hmm. a broader sense, right? Um, what eventually turns in a decision to, to get sober. Um, obviously, he got sober, but he didn't really take a sabbatical in any substantive way. But what King did say uh, pretty resolutely through 87, 88, 89 is that there's never going to be another set of years like 86, 87. Like he, he is mm-hmm. not he's committed to not doing that, which by which I mean, just dumping a huge number of books all at one time. And I actually think that that has to do with that John Lovitz thing that we talked about. Right. Like the SNL thing, L- like directly I, I, with that skit. <laughs> I don't know about that, but that sentiment. Okay, right? yes. The, the, the idea that Stephen King is just churning the shit out and that I think in a broader sense that it it was probably hurting the brand of Stephen King. Oh, and he was so, having his Atari moment. Kind of, right? Overproduction, right? Uh, although, weirdly enough, the Atari moment is, is caused by, um, or at least the narrative we tell historically about that, right, is that because p- any party was able to make... Um, uh, cartridges for the console, there were too many. So overproduction in the market. Steve's doing it himself. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right? <laughs> um, he uh, And so my assumption based on that is that in 88, 89, somewhere there, he signs a big deal with Viking for four books. And my assumption there is that the deal with Viking is such that he can't just drop four books in a year. Mm-hmm. Uh, that it has to, that their payout is kind of uh, based on maintaining the Stephen King brand and maybe controlling a little bit more heavily what comes out in order to make them yearly events. And so I do believe the next several books are, you know, kind of what the model that he is still in, right? Which is like they release in the fall mm-hmm. and they're, they're your Christmas present for your family members, right? Because that's, yep. that's the Stephen mm-hmm. King niche now, mm-hmm. right? You know, It's either hyper-local Gwendy's books, right, that are for a collector audience or a um, superfan audience, or they are, um, you know, the family book Mm -hmm. that you buy in October and, uh, you know, goes to someone in your family. So that's my assumption. My my assumption looking at kind of the pieces and reading through it and getting a sense of Steve, too, is that uh, he ran into an economic condition that kind of drug him back to the early 80s, which is like, the market will only bear so much. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then combined with that, 
he he was getting older. But also combined with that is he did not stop writing during the sabbatical. He churned out all these novellas. Mm-hmm. Um, and he, he'd been working on some of these beforehand, but uh, they're all kind of post-85, I think. Yes. I don't think any of them are, are mm-hmm. earlier than that. And so I think all those things were just running into one another. Because uh, in the interview, um, he talks about uh, the dark half, this book, and needful things. Mm-hmm. And he says, these three are planned. They're all done. This is and this is like late eighty eight, somewhere into eighty nine. Um, he says these are all done; they're all coming out. Uh, and then after that, I don't really know what I'm doing. Mm-hmm. You know, I haven't worked on the next project after that. And, and we know that based on all the interviews I've read from King from the seventies and eighties, he is often very willing to tell you about the next projects. Uh-huh. And so, I think these got crammed together just to meet the contract commitment and not to overproduce on the contract. Mm-hmm. And that makes a lot of sense because, and I said this uh, to you. Uh, probably about a month ago at this point when I started reading this and I was sort of thinking about everything in this book, big picture. Uh, Mm -hmm. All of these novellas are King composites, like sort of retries or like reapproaches to other novels that we have seen recently, uh, which I think is really interesting. It's him like picking up things that he has written about um, in the not too distant past uh, and kind of telling a different story with the same pieces. Yeah, and he even says that in some of the intros to these. He's like, yeah, I kind of just thought, what if I wrote a different novel with the same exact idea? Yeah. <laughs> uh, I guess, well, I mean, unless there's more to talk about there, because really, uh, there there's not much in the way of historical stuff. I can get going on the summary, unless maybe we want to maybe uh, uh, drill down a little bit more on our feeling that this just isn't particularly good. Because sometimes I think people take us uh, for recommenders and they want to know if they should read a thing. And Right. I Well, so, yeah, I guess I have some like big general things to say. What, one is is just to reiterate <clears throat> something you said. This is King repeatedly in the in- – because each of these has an intro. We're really seeing, as we talked about in the last episode, we're really seeing more constant reader you know, mm-hmm. uh, he has settled into calling us the constant reader, which is fascinating, right? That's essentially an, uh, um, a stylistic inner thing that we associate heavily with King today, right? Mm-hmm. Like, oh, he talks to the the reader, constant reader, blah, blah, blah. When the, it's not entirely an invention of the late 80s, but he only settles into using it constantly in the 80s, halfway through his career. Mm-hmm. Um, some would say, arguably, after his career has peaked. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I think most people are going to say that it is kind of it into the stand extended is like a really high watermark that he does not hit again for a very long time. I don't know if I think that we'll see as we read the next 10 years of books, but I, I think that's a common opinion. Mm-hmm. So that's notable to me is that there's the stylistic stuff. Uh, he's really willing to put these intro things in and kind of talk directly to the reader. Mm-hmm. Um, we've seen Steve do that before, but each one of these has its own intro. That's pretty fascinating to me. Um, he is, uh, <laughs> he's talking a lot about baseball. He's talking about all this stuff. Um, and, uh, King's reputation is such at the time. This is the big historical thing that I want to say, cause I read all these castle rocks. King's reputation at the time in the late eighties has a fascinating, like double whammy. It's going in two directions. One is that he is probably more popular than ever. Um, the horror market that Stephen King like partially invents in the U.S. in terms of creating this 
this holistic horror market with lots of people who were imitating and lots of people who were introdu- in, you know, entering that space. Mm-hmm. It, it, it has come and gone at this point. Mm-hmm. Um, it's fascinating to look at the ads in Castle Rock in the early 80s versus the ads in Castle Rock in the late 80s. Uh, just because, you know, there's this massive rush for the market in like 81, 82, 83. And then by the time we get to 89, that is not the case. It is mm-hmm. like hyper specific stuff. By the way, in 89, uh, Horror Fest 89 occurred, which is a Stephen King specific fan convention held at the Stanley Hotel, to which there's an entire issue of Castle Rock dedicated to it. Mm-hmm. It was run by one guy who drove there uh, from like a thousand miles away. And uh, they, people showed up. It was just the academics that we talk about on the show, like Michael Collins, Douglas Winter. Uh-huh. I don't know if Douglas Winter's, but you know, the people who are writing these books I keep referencing. Right. Those people show up. They're the only panelists. They have multiple panels that are just those people getting together behind a table to talk about different stuff every time. Um. <laughs> They have a film festival that is just like they watch Ghostbusters at one point <laughs> during the film festival. Um, and people are mad about it. Uh, they watch Young Frankenstein. Uh, everyone's everyone's mad because there's nothing to do. And apparently people got arrested for drunk driving around in uh, Estes Park because there was nothing to do with the convention. <laughs> so it's a fascinating little moment in time. Uh, of, had- like a small horror convention, you know. Yeah, if only they had podcasters to invite. They really wanted Steve to show up. People people thought Steve was going to like walk through the door at some point, mm-hmm. and he did not. It was called Horror Fest, but it was only about Stephen King. Um, so that that's happening. So so you know Stephen King has got this like micro industry around him, but also a large big picture horror is kind of waning as a popular market. Right. Um, you know, different stuff is happening there. I guess this is the time of like uh, the historical novel and the historical romance kind of becoming the bestseller Mm -hmm. and i think like we're about to enter like the english patient territory right right and then like even in popular culture thinking about this uh you know this is 1990 uh four past midnight uh that's this is we're entering the era where uh like slasher films become uh like popularly repetitive right like the the market for like slasher films becomes weird because there are all these sequels to each thing i'm thinking of like the uh observation that's often made about like the nightmare on elm street films that it starts out with freddy uh krueger as kind of this villain and then as the movies go on he just becomes this like bugs bunny caricature and that's like (laughs) what happens in sort of the 90s films uh so yeah like the the like steam is running out of the horror market. Yeah, in my mind, the end of the slasher film and like that kind of horror market in the 90s is 1993's Jason Goes to Hell, The Final Friday. <laughs> yeah. Which is, if you've never seen before, a fascinating to watch. It is legitimately an entertaining film. Uh, but that to me is like that. Because J- when, when's Jason Takes Manhattan? <sighs> that's right before that, right? Yeah, it's before that. 89. Yeah, that's 89. So. Uh, so somewhere between Jason Takes Manhattan, which is also extremely entertaining, and uh, Jason Goes to Hell, I think you're you know that's the the death of the the horror market in the nineties, mm-hmm. uh, in in the in the pop culture. But yeah, so you're right. So like that is happening. Um, but also like Stephen King is still a household name, mm-hmm. you know. Um, so there's this weird kind of thing where like he's still on the upswing, I think, in terms of like popularity, sales. There's no worries there. Vikings offering him, you know, the super sweet thing at the end of the 80s. Um, 
but and and film adaptations of King stuff are still going on. You know, we've seen several of these early ninety ones uh, in the bonus episodes, which you can check out on patreon.com slash range touch. Um, but then you're also seeing like, you know, in the literature or in the in the genre, a kind of waning genre form. And mm-hmm. then these novel novellas, which are all repetitions. They are literally the thing that Stephen King gets accused of doing, which is overproducing. Um, and you know, oh, it's the it's the haunted lamp family guy joke, you know, yeah. that's made twenty years later. Um, we're still kind of there, so you know, it's an interesting kind of uh, set of things. Notably, I guess the last thing to say about historical context is in eighty nine is when Castle Rock the newsletter stops, and the reason mm-hmm. they stop is for um, kind of two reasons. One is that in the mid eight, like not mid eighties, maybe like 87, 88, they started expanding what the newsletter was about uh, or, or the zine, you know, where we want to call it outside of Stephen King. So they were reviewing general horror. They were doing things. They started including um, original fiction and also fan fiction, which mm-hmm. is quite weird to read, mm-hmm. um, uh, you know, for like Stephen King fanfic is published in, in this thing. And so the contraction from 87 to 89 is they go from 5,000, you know, circulation of 5,000 subscribers to in 89 when they decide to close 1,500. So, you know, the the shine is wearing off of Stephen King fandom, certainly. Uh, And whether that's because of the expansion of content and people just aren't interested in that or because people are just kind of through Stephen King for a little while, you know, the, 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 the 87 taste, you know, kind of overwhelmed them. Um, whatever, you know, one of those things happens. So they decide to close that down uh, specifically, right, because they don't see as much interest anymore in what, what Stephen King is doing and what they could provide as far as context. And reading the letters for 89 is pretty wild because they are increasingly fielding letters from what who I would call like moral majority kind of Reaganites. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> and they're fascinating because lots of them, not lots of them, uh, more than two or three, you know, over the course of a year maybe, are about fighting over Stephen King's politics. I, I was reading one yesterday where it's just, it, it's someone from actually Fayetteville, Georgia, <laughs> who's like <laughs> running for county commissioner. He's very explicit about like what his whole life is about. <laughs> Uh, it's, it's really detailed, but he says, uh, you know, I just can't believe that Stephen King would be someone who supports Jesse Jackson. Right. Mm. And and that's fascinating to me because, you know, in the age of Twitter, we're very aware of Steve's politics. And in, in the age before that, just reading the interviews, you get a different perspective on those, but there's a way that Stephen King's literature, right. Reading the thing. Uh, it's the same thing that Steve has talked about many times, right? He he writes for the, for the broad public. He kind of mind reads what he thinks going on in in the world, and he kind of writes toward that the general person. You know that's why Steve says repeatedly, just because my characters say a thing doesn't mean I believe a thing. Mm-hmm. You know, but that does mean that he has written books under which uh, someone could be someone someone could reasonably believe that Stephen King does not believe uh, that the civil rights movement should have happened, right? Which mm-hmm. is what in this letter what Jesse Jackson's standing in for, right? Mm-hmm. Um, in in the eighties, it's a little bit different, but right, like a broad general set of civil rights principles, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, anyway, so the author function—it's a hell of a thing. It's it's a hell of a thing. Uh, so it's, it, so it's fascinating and it's always interesting, right? Although they have died down whenever we talk about Stephen King and his politics, right? And the, the politics that shows up in the literature, we always get a couple people, uh, poking at us about it a little bit, but like, 
that is, in fact, a key animating force for a huge amount of the fandom mm-hmm. uh, and a huge amount of people engaging with Stephen King is, is looking to Stephen King as an author uh, and trying to kind of puzzle out Rubik's Cube style, like, what are the political beliefs that are in there? Um, and that's part of interpreting literature broadly. Um, mm-hmm. And what's great about Castle Rock is that it was such a clear example of that um, argument or in many different arguments about Stephen King's position in the world and like, what is Stephen King as, as a media apparatus kind of frozen in Amber. Um, and that they, they haven't showed up honestly over the past three or four episodes because Castle Rock did take this weird kind of dog leg turn. Right. Mm-hmm. And half of the issues were fanfic and <laughs> yes. that's interesting, but not something for me to like bring up in close read on the show. So um, unfortunately, now that is over. Uh, since we are in 1990, I can no longer refer to those. Um, but we'll, I think we'll try to do something with the Castle Rock stuff. Yeah. But that's my long... Uh, I know that literally 10 minutes ago, you said, do you have anything small to say about it before we get to the summaries? And after 10 minutes, I can say I'm ready for the summaries. All right. So this is the five-sentence summary, which is the uh, part of the show where... Off the top of our heads, Cameron or I try to summarize the book that we just read in five sentences. Uh, because the book that we just read is is a little different, it's got four novellas in it, I'm still going to do five sentences, but this means that I have to be a lot more prudent with how I do this. So. <clears> hmm. <throat> four Past Midnight is a collection of four novellas by Stephen King. Period. Great. In the Langoliers, a group of passengers on a red-eye flight from L.A. to Boston discover that they are the only people on the plane, as well as the entire planet, after they fly through a rip in space-time. Semicolon. Mm-hmm. Tactical. Uh-huh. Uh, soon they are under threat from metaphysical monsters until a psychic little girl orchestrates the merciful self-sacrifice of a deeply abused adult man. Period. Period. (laughs) Uh, in Secret Window, Secret Garden, a recently divorced New England writer is accused of plagiarism by a strange southern man who turns out to be his psychological projection of his desire to murder his adulterous wife, but also is the ghost of a guy he actually plagiarized when he was in college, I guess. In The Library Policeman, a small-town real estate agent becomes the target of a malevolent local librarian who is also a ancient shape-shifting entity that feeds on the fears of children and turns certain adults, though notably not the protagonist, actually into sex-addicted alcoholics. Yep. Uh... In The Sun Dog, a young boy comes into possession of a haunted Polaroid camera that will only produce images of a strange dog-like creature, 
which is probably the most hacky and unfrightening monster you could put in a short story, by the way. And uh, eventually the boy becomes entangled with a, a, a duplicitous old junk shop owner uh, who has his own plans for the camera, even though it is clear that the creature in the images is getting closer with each picture. Period. Yeah. There you go. Mm-hmm. You did it. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> some sort of, you know, I wonder what facial expression that dog is making. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's wearing a bolo tie. <laughs> it, it is wearing a bolo Not tie. Not to jump to the end, but like, that's my favorite detail. There's a haunted evil pseudo dog wearing a bolo tie. <laughs> is that in Smile Dog? Did I miss that? No, <laughs> no I didn't include that detail. Should have. Um, really, yeah, really. The thing that that I would, thing. would that, you know, would the bolo tie have made made it unviral? You know, <laughs> yeah. Like, would that have been too weird? <laughs> I think so. I think that would have killed it. <laughs> People would have been like, "What the fuck is this? I'm not going to reshare this." <laughs> I think it would have been like, "What's a bolo tie?" Yeah. So here's the thing. After we read the sun, because. The sun dog uh, is clearly an inspiration to the smiling dog. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it, it, you, you, uh, the basic concept, sort of similar, and then you spin it off into a different thing, into the creepypasta format. And also, like, the kind of internal mechanics are, are quite different. But, like, big schematic idea, kind of similar. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, so so I was re- reading the, uh, the short story, mm-hmm. and I was like... Wait, hold on, I gotta, I gotta see. Has anyone put this together? Uh-huh. You know, has it, so I got on the old, uh, uh, creepy pasta wikis. Uh-huh. Started reading the comments on those things. That shit's wild. Uh-huh. Re- reading the 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 comments on a creepy pasta wiki is like it, and it was also like one a.m. because <laughs> uh, I finished this very late last night. And uh, you, you're just you're gonna get a, a fire hose, a random shit right in the face. Yeah, <laughs> of, of just people being like, "This is the scariest thing I've ever heard. I can't believe it. I'm just I'm reading this. I'm shaking right yeah. now." And then people being like, "I read this as a kid, and it was too scary for me." And then people being like, "What's a photograph?" <laughs> you, you know, like le- like fundamental questions about like things. Like nouns in the world, mm-hmm. you know, like, that are in the story this, that they don't understand. The story mentioned Chicago. What is that? What's Chicago? <laughs> it's 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 uh, some wild stuff. Anyway, uh, yeah. Um, so anyway, you know, we have all agreed that it's Langoliers. <clears throat> that it's Langoliers. Yeah, it's Langoliers. That's our new podcast. <laughs> it's Langoliers. We talk about yesterday's news. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's like the disintegration uh, loops or whatever. Slowly over the, the course of the episode, it, it fades into just pure yes. static. Uh, but but it could be Langolier, is what I'm saying. It's a fake word. I suppose that's true. We don't know if Craig Toomey maybe might have been from Montreal or something. Yeah, I was thinking about that the whole time. Langolier. <laughs> the Robert Goulet. Anyway, that's here. all I have to say about that one. You want to talk about? Uh, <laughs> Uh, no, we can talk about yeah. it. Yeah, uh, because I think the Langolier, um, well, 
I think the Langoliers is the story from this collection that still has the highest profile outside of the collection, maybe aside from Secret Window, Secret Garden, because it also gets turned into a film. But that film had this like uh, weird moment of popularity around the time it was released, I feel like, and then has kind of disappeared in the intervening years, uh, at least partly maybe because Johnny Depp is is the the main star but i think even before like recent uh, revelations and allegations about depp and his actions and character were were public uh i feel like that movie kind of had had its moment in the theater or just after the theater where it seemed like every guy that i knew had seen it uh and then it like evaporated so yeah it's i i think i was telling you this the other day but the in like 2013, 2014, and Secret Window came out in like 2008 or something. 2004, right? I think. 2004, so way earlier. But in like 2013, 2014, I was teaching like a film history course. And, you know, part of that class is, you you know, you go around the first day. What's your favorite movie? And you, I would have four or five every semester where their favorite movie was Secret Window, Secret Garden. Yeah, Secret Window 2004. Yeah, a, t- a decade later. I don't know. I don't understand it. Yeah, I, I don't know either. Like, I remember watching it and being like, well, that it, it was serviceable, right? That's actually uh, the big picture uh, point of view on these stories. Uh, many of them could be serviceable and in many ways mm-hmm. they are. Uh, that they are they are definitely kind of on the lesser end of like what King is capable of, but like the concepts are interesting and good. And I think one of the reasons like Secret Window got its uh, like little film and had maybe its little afterlife is because fundamentally the the pieces of that story work. Uh, and in fact, the pieces of that story that I think don't work that I maybe uh, you could have t- told by the the tone of my voice when I described them in the summary, uh, the film cuts uh, those elements out and just focuses on the parts that work. So it's got that going for it. Uh, yeah. Yes. Well, let's talk about the Langoliers first, because I think I, I think you're right. The Langoliers and Secret Window, Secret Garden are the only parts of this book anyone knows about. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that if you uh, ask a general group of people about the library policeman or uh sundog, they won't have any idea about what you're talking about. You'd mm-hmm. be like, you know, Stephen King's famous sundog story, and no one will know what you're saying. So uh Langoliers is exactly as you summarized it, right? People on a plane, people mm-hmm. on streets, people on a plane. <laughs> uh the they're on this plane, they go into the past, they get off plane, and then we got this like uh Locked room thing going on with people who are hooting and hollering and uh, having to fight Craig Toomey. <laughs> yes. Uh, businessman galore. Mm-hmm. Gordon Geckos. Uh, like the worst Gordon Gecko. Mm-hmm. Um, now, you can go listen to our bonus ode that is releasing right now. It's on patreon.com slash range touches out the very moment you are listening to this. If you can hear this, you can hear the other thing. We do the miniseries. It's ABC. ABC yes. miniseries? Mm-hmm. I, I'll I'll never remember. After after CBS Home Video got me with that DVD, I'll never be able to remember which one is correct. <laughs> but uh, you can listen to that right now, and it's uh, Michael and I and Nick Weiger. Nick Weiger from Doughboys and Get Played um, talking about the miniseries, which we, I think, had a good time talking about. I think it's a great episode. You should check it out. Yeah. It's quite fun. I agree. 
Um, I just roast the shit out of Nick Weiger for not mentioning us on Doughboys. I opened the episode with it. It's fun. Michael loved it. He laughed the whole time. Yeah, I was like chortling and with glee. I was like up in the rafters like a, a little elf or some sort of rat thing sitting on Jabba's tail. Mm-hmm. He's like, get his ass. Uh-huh. What, do you, <laughs> what if what if that little rat thing, what's that guy's name? Salacious, Salacious B. Crumb. Crumb. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I didn't know he had a middle initial. But what if he was like, <laughs> get his ass. Yes. <laughs> get his ass. <laughs> <laughs> Fuck him up! <laughs> <laughs> Fuck him up, Java! <laughs> <laughs> oh, someone edit that in, please. Someone put that in. Uh, just edit that into the video of uh, Salacious Crumb talking. Or give, give it, give it to him clean. You, you got the better one. Fuck him up, Java! Give me the laugh too. They need the laugh. <laughs> Fuck him up, Java. <laughs> all right, there you go. You got all the tools. But anyway, so we did that. Patreon.com slash range touch. You can check that out right now. Um, and so we get into like kind of all the character interactions and things of that there. It's a little reduced in the miniseries, but actually it's a pretty accurate adaptation mm-hmm. because this 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 story is conceptually a rerun at the mist. Mm-hmm. Like big picture, mm-hmm. but internally is like a murder mystery almost in terms of putting a character in the story who functions as 1982 Stephen King to detailed walk you through <laughs> what exactly has occurred. It's over explaining Steve come back again, but through a character. Yeah. Mystery writer, Bob Jenkins, Bob Jenkins. His name was Bob. J- His name was Robert Jenkins. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I mean, he's the person who like very slowly and annoyingly walks us through the exact mechanisms of like how time warps work, mm-hmm. things like that. Notably, they travel back through the past or travel back to the past because they are warned that the Aurora Borealis has appeared above the Mojave Desert, mm-hmm. probably due to some immense number of nuclear explosions in a different universe. I bet. <laughs> probably. But yeah, you definitely. Uh, you know, this is how, uh, Bob entered the world, of course, we know that, mm-hmm. uh, that's, that's not in the Mojave thing, but, uh, Bob, that's how Bob entered the world, but also, uh, via the transitive quality of media representation, uh, the end of, of the Fallout New Vegas DLC, the final DLC, yes. uh, created the conditions <laughs> for the Langoliers. But in a general sense, I would say, if the Aurora Borealis is happening in your kitchen, you know, uh, today... You shouldn't fly a plane through. Mm -hmm. I think you should just, you know, don't do that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it it seems Uh, pretty odd that they're like, hey, you're getting on this plane. uh, Just so you know, the Aurora Borealis is happening and you're going to be flying through it. I don't I mean, maybe maybe that's Mm -hmm. how planes work. But it strikes me as the sort of thing that you would try to avoid. Mm -hmm. I read this at uh, an age you know, in my my teen my teen years, my preteen teen years, uh, I read this at an age where I was also reading a huge amount of Bermuda Triangle stuff. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Were you into that? Were you oh, into like that? Mm-hmm. The what? The Philadelphia Project is that the other one? Yep. Mm-hmm. That that teleporting uh, boat mm-hmm. with the people in it. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Tell me about that because that's why I thought of <laughs> while I was reading that 
what this is like, oh, this is like a swing at Steve doing a Bermuda Triangle story, which one, he doesn't really do, mm-hmm. you know, for, for a concept that's so popular, he never really gets to it. And two, that's kind of fallen out of culture. Yeah. Yeah. There's something I think about uh, the way things get documented now. That means that you can't pull off the mystery as well or something. Uh, because the other thing about this that I think is uh, worth noting is that it's so much of an old Twilight Zone type deal. Like there's something knowingly retro about the whole thing. So the in addition to uh, uh, the mist, uh, the other thing that's kind of coming into play here is the Tommyknockers. And notably, the mist and the Tommyknockers are both King uh, revisiting the 1950s B-movie science fiction kind of tropes. So that's happening mm-hmm. again. Uh, and more relevantly from the Tommyknockers, we get the reappropriation of the device from the Tommyknockers where uh, there are these aliens that could be called anything, but they just like pull the word the Tommyknockers out of someone's head and that's what they start calling themselves. And it's like a, a childhood nursery rhyme. Uh, here, the same device gets deployed where the Langoliers are like these monsters that were made up by uh, the character Craig Toomey's father in order to, like, terrify him. Uh, and then in a less direct way, everyone just starts calling them the Langoliers uh, because I guess you got to call them something. Uh, but they're, they're these mysterious entities that are growing closer and they're going to do whatever turns out if you haven't seen the famously uh, a weird mini series which again you can hear us talk about at patreon.com slash range touch uh they're like uh the monsters that eat the past right like the, the the material conditions of the past uh persist after like humans and consciousness have left them and then they have to be like eaten up so they're like the the cleanup crew for the space-time continuum right mm-hmm. um I think maybe the most interesting thing about this story is the fact that it does have a pretty big cast. It's got like 10 or 11 characters, uh, uh, maybe even more than that. I guess if you count the drunk guy who never wakes up, he just like sleeps mm-hmm. on the plane the entire time. Uh, is that is that Stephen? King? I think so. Like he's described as yeah. looking a little bit like Stephen King. He's like a, a big uh, a burly guy with a, a massive black beard. Yeah, that's what I thought. I was like, oh, this is Steve. Yeah. This is like him writing himself into into the book, mm-hmm. which is funny. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, uh, this is uh, like a King has worked with big casts before, but he tends to do that in big books. Like books will uh, grow to match the size of the cast for Steve. So the stand, uh, it presumably um, under the dome, which I have not read. Uh, but uh, this is the first time he's tried to do kind of a big cast in a small space like you said it's kind of a mystery it's almost like a a locked room mystery even though they're not really in a locked room it's more like people walking through every possible room that is totally vacant (laughs) vacant and trying to uh figure out right reverse engineer what what are the conditions under which uh this might be the situation that we're in yeah, it's a it's a what done it rather than a who done it. Yes, and but the but they begin the what with any possible thing in the universe. Yes, <laughs> uh, uh, and that's not to say all of like so. Those are the interesting things. Those are the things that I was sort of tracking uh, in terms of how this thing executes on those. Uh, the characters are all cardboard, um, which I think is fine because this is a 
you know, fairly short, brief story, uh, and, like, sometimes characters are cardboard, right? Sometimes the, the story is about, like, this outline of a person talking to this outline of a person trying to get this plot development to happen, and you're there for kind of the, the escalation and the adrenaline or whatever. Um, mm-hmm. That said, there are some, some interesting choices made with these characters. Uh, Nick Hopewell who we discuss again on our episode on the miniseries is uh, Stephen King's attempt to write a British guy. Um, a British war criminal. Yeah. British war criminal. Uh, I, I wanted to save that little bit for later. Cause yeah, it turns out this oh, guy's sorry. doing uh war crimes in Northern Ireland. Um, but just, do you think this was a, a Peter Straub dare? I, I don't know. I sort of, think. you can't do it, Steve. Yeah. <laughs> you can't do it, Steve. So, but here, here's how I just want to read this, uh, because Please. this is Steve uh, uh, letting you know this guy is British. So, uh, the context here, the um, uh, people have woken up, they've woken up on the plane, everyone else has disappeared, um, they're all, fr- all the people who are still there are freaking out, and one of them is Craig Toomey, uh, who's this guy who is desperate to get to this business meeting that he's supposed to be at in Boston, he's like so untethered from reality or sort of like the, the circumstances of his reality that he's just like, it does not matter to him that everyone else has disappeared. He's just like, I need to get to Boston for this meeting. Now it turns out it's because he's like basically set that meeting up to be a tinderbox in which he is going to uh, explode his own life. Um, not in a literal sense, but like he's he's knowingly kind of engaged in a bad business deal that is going to ruin his career. Uh, he's like self-destructive. Um, and so he's kind of like uh, uh, worked his way uh, out of, you know, normal concerns. So he's like, I need to get to Boston, blah, 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 blah. Uh, and Nick Hopewell, who uh, intercedes as kind of this voice of reason who's going to keep people managed. Uh, he's he's trying to talk to me down. And so he says. Have you ever watched Star Trek? Nick Hopewell asked suddenly. Crew neck, and that's uh, uh, to me, because right now we don't know his name. He just has a crew neck shirt on. Crew neck's face, suffused with angry blood, swung around. His expression said that he believed the Englishman was clearly mad. What in the hell are you talking about? Marvelous American program, Nick said. Science fiction, exploring strange new worlds, like the one which apparently exists inside your head. And if you don't shut your gob at once, you bloody idiot, I'll be happy to demonstrate Mr. Spock's famous Vulcan sleeper hold for you. (laughs) You can't talk to me like that, Crewneck snarled. Do you know who I am? Of course, Nick said. You're a bloody-minded little bugger who has mistaken his airline boarding pass for the credentials proclaiming him to be the Grand High Poobah of creation. You are also badly frightened. No harm in that, but you are in the way. So, marvelous American program. Marvelous American writing. (laughs) Uh, And he calls everyone matey. (laughs) Yeah, I just don't... Has Steve spoken to anyone from... It would be great... Like they, so what they do in the adaptation is they take him and he's like, you know, your traditional kind of high class English person, right? He's like James Bond, but what if James Bond were, uh, oh gosh, who's the, uh, who's the guy that Tom Cruise portrayed the spy? Who, Ethan who, Hunt? What do a, no, the other one. The other, the other spy. Uh, oh gosh, he, he killed Werner Herzog. Oh shit. Mm. <laughs> You know what I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. Tom Cruise. Werner. <laughs> Herzog. Jack Reacher. Oh, oh yes. Mm-hmm. 
He's like an English Jack Reacher type. Yes. Perhaps before Jack Reacher was invented. I don't know when those novels began coming out, um, right? But he's like rough and tumble ass kicker. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they should have given him like a Cockney accent or like a Manchester accent. But I, I don't know if Steve cares about that, but that would have been better in the adaptation. <laughs> uh, it would have been much more uh, ridiculous. Mm-hmm. And so therefore, uh, Twilight Zoning. Uh, but yeah, he's just fight- every line that he has is like that. Mm-hmm. And then later he talks about killing a bunch of kids. Yep. Yep. Uh, and it turns out he was flying to Boston to like uh, assassinate some uh, IRA supporting politician. Yeah, was he doing that? I can't remember if that's in the book or in the adaptation that he he couldn't actually do the politician, so he had to kill his his girlfriend. Yeah, uh, that's in the adaptation. I know. Yeah, I can't remember if it's in this book or not. Uh, I know he's like he's going to Boston specifically to kill someone is like, yeah, and it's because yeah. it's Boston. The IRA connection is, if not asserted, then implied. Yeah, the uh, yeah, but otherwise it's pretty straightforward. It's not not a complicated piece. Uh, you know, they they things happen. They get there. They leave. Mm-hmm. Um, I so I did find we talked about in the bonus episode about wrapping the toaster uh-huh. in a sling. Yeah, I found the light is on page one fifty eight for me. This is from Albert, uh, who is uh, a, a cowboy. Oh yeah, <laughs> in his mind he's a cowboy. When I was a kid, we used to play Indiana Jones. Albert said apologetically, "I made something like this and pretending it was my whip. I almost broke my brother David's arm once. I loaded an old blanket with a sash weight I found in the garage. Pretty stupid, I guess. I didn't know how hard it would hit. I got a hell of a spanking for it. It looks stupid, I guess, but it actually works pretty well. It always did, at least. So he's got a blanket with a yeah. toaster in it that he's using to whip people's ass with." And I think it's notable that I had like read this and then I watched the miniseries and I can I had completely forgotten that there is like a weaponized toaster in this story. Yeah. Oh, yeah, that's right. Because in the thing you were like, no, I don't think that's in the book. Yeah. And I had not finished it. at that point. There's something so absurd about the idea and then like having to see it deployed like in an image. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's yeah. weird. Um. I have two before we move on to the next thing, because I actually don't have much more to say about the Langoliers Mm -hmm. uh, unless you do. Um, They eventually get in the plane. They fly back through the thing. It kills one guy. Uh, It kills the Englishman because he has to be awake when they fly through the portal Uh, and they get there. They land in LA, land in LAX. There's a fun little thing where they are actually in the future rather than the past. They have to wait for the present to catch up with them. And that all occurs. Mm -hmm. The end. Uh, but I have two uh, big, big thoughts about this. Uh, the first one is that Steve has said, he said that it was him closing the door on stories about children and their problems. Mm-hmm. That is absolute bullshit. Yep. He has continued. All of the books after it have still had the same stuff in them. Mm-hmm. They still have this. I mean, they're not, uh, they don't have like huge POV character, you know, we're only getting the kids talking kind of stuff. I, I do understand the difference here, but like Dinah in this story mm-hmm. is just a Stephen King kid, mm-hmm. you know, and is pathetic. Um, not in like necessarily the way we use that term, but pathetic in like pathos, right? Like she is only there for us to feel bad for because she is blind. Mm-hmm. And then she is, is killed for plot based reasons. And we are supposed to feel infinitely bad about that. Mm-hmm. Um, 
and I don't care for it. I, I think it is, uh, it's like going for the gross out times 10. Yeah. Well, and that's critical uh, to understand because she and Toomey are kind of like the dyad that make the plot of this story go. And Toomey's yeah. entire thing is that he can't get out of his childhood. That he right. uh, was a he was like horrifically abused in the miniseries. Uh, this is just reduced to his father, like yelling at him constantly about the Langoliers, these little monsters that will come and eat you if you're lazy, uh, which <laughs> good on his father uh, for like thematically anticipating the highly unlikely science fiction scenario that his son is going to end up in where he is eaten by monsters that eat the past. Right. Look, a good a good parent prepares their child for anything. Yeah. Uh but anyhow, right? That's what that's what happens in the miniseries. It's just that uh and the um the novella actually makes it like his father dies when he's young. Like his father is there and he does all that stuff, but then he dies when Craig is like I don't know, 8 or something. Uh but then he has to live with his mom and his mom is an alcoholic and horrifically physically abusive in addition to being emotionally abusive. So uh Craig is like and, and sexually abusive oh, too, right? Yes, that's right. Right. Mm-hmm. Um it's ju- it's just like every it is again going for the gross out, right? It's just compiling how many forms of child abuse could you stack onto one character? Right. And so like the climax of the novel, while they're trying to escape in the plane and the Langoliers are coming, um, is like what happens is Dinah using her psychic powers maneuvers Craig into running out onto the tarmac. And he like, uh, the Langoliers go to him first rather than going straight to the plane. Like, uh, she cosmically uses him as a distraction. And at the same time, uh, like Dinah is, she's again, using her psychic powers to like, look through his eyes and, she sees the people on the plane and she talks about how in like the final moments, everything was beautiful because uh, one of Toomey's things is that he like sees everyone as kind of like grotesque and monstrous because of all of his psychological issues. Um, So there are like, uh, in addition to everything you've said about Dinah, there's this weird like pseudo redemption of Craig Toomey that is happening by way of Dinah, where for plot reasons, she, I called it in my summary. It's like it's kind of this like mercy killing because, again, he is he is already on track to like blow up his life uh, at this meeting in Boston. Uh, And so basically uh, they let him do that. They let him like die, but also like not really be cognizant or conscious of it. It's uh, it's best not to like get too wrapped up in this. It's just one of those things that feels kind of weird. It's like I I understand like sort of why all of these plot mechanisms mechanisms are happening, but also the vibe's just odd. It's very very odd. It's extremely odd. It it it, it does not cohere into any kind of statement right. at the end, which is fine. It doesn't have to, right? But it it does seem like normally Steve's pretty good at the genre thing of like. Res- Someone exists in the world. They are they experience horrific abuse. Think about um, oh the villain from it, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and then they enter into this like kind of like plot based monster function, mm-hmm. right? You mm-hmm. know what I mean? Like they're they're just a monster now, and that's how it goes. And he's pretty good at like kind of putting these psychological uh, wheels in motion mm-hmm. right and then but then being like and now they are jason <laughs> yes and and like whatever like let's not think too hard about it 
Um, whereas Stephen King going into the 90s, I mean, we've talked about the kind of psychologization of the bourgeois novel across, and that's what kind of makes King's horror really interesting, is that he does that. That part of Stephen King is about to overwhelm all of the other parts of Stephen King. Mm -hmm. And I think this is like an early Canary in the Coal Mine moment of like uh, him trying to resolve to me here mm -hmm. and like turn him from something that is not Jason, you know, or this kind of like monster who's been abused. Him trying to do additional stuff with it is is uh, uh, early warning symbol <laughs> sign for what is about to happen over the next seven or eight books that we're going to read. Um, and so that's interesting to me, too. He's kind of an early swing at a kingy type that's about to show up mm -hmm. um, and, you know, dominate, say, insomnia. Mm -hmm. uh, but yeah. but anyway, so, yeah, it, but it doesn't there's no he he doesn't know how or is not interested in resolving it. So literally someone who has been abused his entire life and who seems to not have been in control of his life. Mm -hmm. Right. He goes into these like catatonic moments of um, repetition and like obsessive compulsion right of ripping these strips of paper and stuff um in in his last moments he is yet again puppeted by someone else into his own death yeah. in the same way that his father's abuse and his mother's abuse puppeted him into a life of business and or um you know mm -hmm. whatever these like weird uh experiences he has so yeah uh bad feels all around but they all get back and yeah. the war criminal dies. So who who's to say if the story is good or bad? <laughs> right. Uh, uh, there's just a couple more things to note then uh, just about this story briefly. <clears throat> uh, one is uh, Craig Toomey's mother used to sing him constantly the song Angel uh, of the Morning, which we'll talk about in a later segment. Uh, but this seems to relate to the It Chapter 2 film. Uh, yeah. We can maybe save that discussion for there, but I just want to, like, foreground it here. Uh, the other thing is that people give the miniseries of the Langoliers a lot of shit for the Langoliers themselves when they finally show up looking bad. Okay, great, granted. Special effects of that aren't great. Um, monster design, kind of weird. But when you think about what they were working with, not too far off the text, because how the Langoliers are described in text, are as beach balls. Yeah, yes. Like, that's that's what Steve gave them to work with. Uh, they're described as, like, a, a like herd of beach balls that are, like, moving uh, down the runway and, like, devouring the world as it, as it comes, or as they come, rather. Um... Which is not the best, you know, example of, of uh, thrilling and terrifying monster language, but also I think suggests something else that's very interesting. Namely, where did this idea come from? I think, Cameron, mm -hmm. I think that the Langoliers are Steve trying to write about machine elves. Do you know about machine elves, Cameron? Well, I'm, I'm aware of the, uh, the, the song about machine elves. <laughs> where i've been cornered at a party and austin walker tells me about them <laughs> yeah yeah check out uh, that was on waypoint right when they discussed the machine elves yeah I yeah think i think so. so um so uh uh go check out that uh if you want to know more about machine elves but here's here's the 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 short version um terrence mckenna uh who was a i don't know what he was officially because i know he did have a I thought he had a degree. He was an ethnobotanist, okay, yep. and a mystic, uh, uh, a guy who um, 
took a lot of drugs and, you know, a psychonaut, expanded his mind uh, and tried to get a, a handle on the world and the ethics of the world in that way. Uh, one of the things um, that he talked about was taking uh, the uh, psychogenic or like hallucinogenic drug uh, DMT. Uh, and he said that when he took the took that when he was on a DMT trip, he encountered these creatures that he called uh, uh, machine elves. Uh, which were described as kind of like uh, living fractal beings that try to talk to you through sound or like not talk to you. They, they uh, teach you a language that is both sound and visual and uh, so on and so forth. But um, uh, this gets taken up within kind of these circles as a description of like, are, are these things just like... Uh, uh, hallucinations that people are having while they're on this drug, or are they actually like these these creatures, right? And I'm thinking, this is like in a conspiracist kind of mode. Uh, Alex Jones, for example, has talked about machine elves and how there are people in the government who are in collusion with the machine elves who are trying to come over from their, like, quantum realm into ours, right? Um, however, one of the ways that McKenna describes uh, the machine elves is as uh, jeweled self-dribbling basketballs. So, I think that there's a uh, uh, some connection here. I think I think Steve like read about machine elves and was like, "Huh, that's an interesting idea. I'll make mine beach balls." Uh, yeah, just yep. my guess. <laughs> it's good guess. <laughs> uh, so yeah, that's that's the uh, the Lingoliers. Secret it's window, all- secret garden. The Lingoliers. Yeah, Secret Window, Secret Garden. I think this one's good. Yeah, this is pretty all right, except for the end. I think the end ruins this story. I don't even know what happens at the end. That's the one where it reveals that it was a ghost all along. Oh, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that's okay. Well, it was him all along, plus a ghost. (laughs) Yeah, that's that's the thing. It's like, what the fuck? Yeah, that's right. Um, It's such a banger of an opening. Mm Mm-hmm. Right, let me let me read this. This is the open your secret window, secret garden. You stole my story, the man on the doorstep said. You stole my story and something's got to be done about it. Right is right and fair is fair and something has to be done. Morton Rainey, who had just gotten up from a nap and who was still feeling only halfway into the real world, didn't have the slightest idea what to say. This was never the case when he was at work, sick or well, wide awake or half asleep. He was a writer and hardly ever at a loss when it came it became necessary to fill a character's mouth with a snappy comeback. Think uh, that that is knowing the shape of the whole story. Mhm. That fucking rocks, right? This opening thing, if you know the whole shape of the story, is just excellent, right? Mhm. Uh was still still feeling only halfway into the real world. Mhm. It's cuz he's talking to himself. He right. is halfway in the real world. He's half real. Mm-hmm. Just like Jesper Yule. <laughs> um, he was a writer and hardly ever at a loss when it became necessary to fill a character's mouth with a snappy comeback. Well, he's writing the other side. Right. He just can't That's write good. the comeback. It's so ah! good. It's good. That's good stuff. That's like big concept, Steve. Mm-hmm. Um, which if uh, Stephen King had a stand... It would be big concept, Steve. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this uh, in the intro to this one, because you asked about this when we read the dark half. You were like, isn't it just isn't this story that is to say the dark half just secret window, secret garden? 
Uh, and then in the intro to this story, Secret Window, Secret Garden, uh, Steve says, while writing the dark half, I started to wonder, what if I took all of these elements and put them together in a different way and told a different story? That That is, is the funniest admission I've ever seen, where he's like, yeah, I thought I could just kind of write that story but more efficiently mm-hmm. and faster. And with the same stuff, but just in told in a different order. And it is very similar to it, mm-hmm. right? I mean, it has the entire... The Dark Half is entirely a a book that is like, could Thad Beaumont be doing the crimes? Mm-hmm. You know, that that's the thing. Could Thad Beaumont be doing all these murders? And then the whole book is just him and Bannerman. No, not Bannerman. Uh, Pangborn. Ban- yeah, Pangborn. Just gaming out these scenarios. It really truly is like 70% of the word count. Just gaming out scenarios under which that could happen, and it doesn't. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, again, just what's in this. Although it does all get kind of shoved underneath, you know, into the background, because that they, there's an insurance investigator doing that. Um, and we don't get him, you know, we don't get the moment-to-moment blow-by-blow. It's really just the, the main character here, Mort, mm-hmm. and talk about a terrible character name oh yeah um but uh, it's just mort here trying to figure out if he like where this guy who thinks he stole his story could have come from and under what conditions his story could be stolen yep and that's it yep 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 and then uh other other similarities he is a, a an author uh he is at a lake house um notably not castle lake it's lake tashmore uh some other place uh the issue of the wife is also central in both of them i actually you know i don't want to uh, uh, biography is not the 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 sole determinant of the text and its meaning right but um when we, when you think about the dark half being this story that steve writes coming out of uh addiction and the choice to become sober um and how in that story uh we we get the eventually the backstory that uh, Thad's wife uh, came to him and said, like, you're drinking a lot when you write as George Stark. You need to stop this. And like he chooses to maintain the relationship with her and like continue on in their life together rather than write these George Stark novels. Uh, here we have a marriage that's gone south, but kind of for different reasons where uh, Mort was basically just such a bad husband that his wife cheated on him and then he caught her in the affair and they're already divorced. And then the entire engine of the novel is him creating this psychological projection that allows him to work out his desire to murder her, uh, which he attempts to do and uh, then isn't. Like, he he's not successful. Um, and then that insurance adjuster that you mentioned comes in, and it's literally like the end of Hitchcock's Psycho, where the <laughs> yes. doctor comes in and explains to everyone, he had a split personality, and here's how this happened, and here's how this happened. Da-da-da-da-da. So... Uh, yeah, that's that's that story. Yep, and he realizes it was him the whole time. He was himself the whole time, and then he does try to kill his wife. Mm-hmm. The uh, y- yeah. Well, what's so fascinating to me is like we're back to killing your wife, mm-hmm. which was like a big part of Stephen King for a while, then kind of went away. Uh, and uh, there's something. Well, uh, sorry, sorry. Take one step back. There's a lot of biography in this that that he just talks about in the intro. Like, Secret Window, Secret Garden comes from an actual experience he had at his own house. Mort's house is Stephen King's house. You know, mm-hmm. he's talking about how people show up to his front gate and take pictures, right? Like, right. that's Stephen King's house. Um, it is this big manor kind of place that's a little... 
ostentatious, you mm-hmm. know, for a town of its size. So there's a lot of purposeful biography going on here. And what I love is that, you know, there's also this maneuver about his wife here, who whose name I do not have written down. Do you know? I do not have is? it written down either. I didn't either. I wouldn't have known more if not for reading the the that first. Amy is her name. Um, what I mean, she she is Tabitha King, right? Like she has her office, you know, this little office. She has a little garden that's going on here. She is a writer in her own right and tried to publish a novel or tried to work on a novel and then ultimately didn't see it through, even though Tabitha King would eventually see all that stuff through. Um, what I love is the turn, especially in 90s King, right, or 1990 King, publishing this in 1990, where essentially uh, uh, Mort's wife Amy divorces him and goes and, and uh, hooks up with John Grisham. <laughs> Right? I mean, that's yes! that character. Oh whatever my his God. name is. Yeah, Shooter is his last name? Or No, no, no. no. That's the other guy. John Shooter's he, the, his villain. Yeah, but the guy is from, like, Shooter's Ridge, Tennessee or something. Yes, that's right. Yeah, he's from Tennessee, not Mississippi, but, you know, he's, like, good-looking. He's younger. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's wearing these, like, open-collar shirts. He's John Grisham, like, straight up, mm-hmm. which is such a funny thing. And I think by 90, they know one another. Um, mm-hmm. And so, you know, it's a little, I think, a fun thing. But uh, there's something really uh, great about that. Um, But yeah, Yeah. I I think it's like a fun little story. I think Mm -hmm. that this is maybe one of the more teachable King stories. In what sense? Well, in in the sense of like, uh, it's pretty short. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's not a short story, obviously, but it has all the beats of like a Stephen King novel. And it gives you a really good sense of like, what he's up to at this time, which are these like little clockwork books, you know, mm, where, mm-hmm. where everything's kind of plotted out. And this need to over explain has transformed itself into the crime genre as opposed to the science fiction stuff it was before. So now he's not explaining psychokinesis to you or whatever. <laughs> uh, he is over explaining like how a person could appear to be in two places at one time. Right. How uh, fast do you have to drive to get from this place to this place and burn down a house? Right. Uh, and, you know, he, it does a really good job of oscillating between the kind of creepier, ghostly stuff. It has all the uh, and, and then the more psychologically real things, you know, the, the the things between Mort and Amy, those feel like real people talking to one another. Mm-hmm. Um, it is the kind of preview, again, of the King we're going to see in the 90s of these very psychologically real people running into situations that are like uh, they're, they're not equipped for which mm-hmm. is not exactly how King was doing it before. He had all these pieces of the bourgeois novel, but I wouldn't say that he was constantly creating these like purposely three-dimensional feeling characters. They mm-hmm. would have enough to make them feel two-dimensional maybe, but they weren't these kind of holographic things. Uh, and it also has these references to kind of classic literature in there. Um, you know, the the cat, his cat gets murdered, mm-hmm. unfortunately. And gets nailed to the wall, and it's like Wuthering Heights, right? It's yeah. it's the it's the Heathcliff warning from Wuthering yeah. Heights with that tiny. My, my dog. cat heard you say that and uh, trilled at me. Uh oh. Yeah, you're upsetting him. Well, I'll have you know, it's uh, you stole my story, Michael Lutz. I'm gonna have to cuddle your cat. <laughs> uh, I need to step away to let him out of the room. Hold on. <laughs> Yeah, I would say my favorite part of this story is how, like what you mentioned with, um, like the guy shows up and he says his name is John Shooter. And then it turns out that the guy has 
uh, wife is ha- was was having an affair with and is now in a relationship with was like from Shooter's Ridge, Tennessee or something. Those are my favorite parts where uh, it starts out like, you know, there's no reason to suspect that this guy is some sort of psychological projection. Uh, and everything about him, all these little like details about his life are just sort of offered very flatly. And then as Mort is kind of like thinking through things, he starts realize it, it's uh, he starts realizing that all of these words and details and elements are actually pulled from other things that Mort has encountered. Uh, and I think that's really cool. I really love how that works out in this story. Uh, and then him discovering his plagiarism or, you know, remembering his suppressed memory, by the way huge amount of suppressed memories in uh-huh. this volume uh-huh. um and again not to get too biographical because biography is not destiny uh but uh you know if you're someone who spent a basically it seems like a decade almost in uh either on cocaine or on pills or on nyquil or drunk uh you might have a lot of things you did and said that you do not remember mm-hmm. um and uh, i feel like you can kind of feel some reckoning with that coming through in all of these, but yeah, he just straight up stole a guy in his class's story, a guy who died in Vietnam. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like the, uh, it was when he was in college, when he was an undergraduate, there was this guy in their class who everyone was kind of jealous of cause he was just such a good writer, but he was also extremely unassuming, uh, and basically becomes like the prototype for the, the personality of John shooter that he's going to construct. And Mort just like, takes the story that he put into the workshop that everyone liked and just publishes it as his own and then has a career spanning whatever 10 20 years after that uh sort of expecting like after he publishes it under his own name he expects uh someone to catch him and then it never happens and then he kind of like you know memory holds the guilt uh and i do think i also i like this move too because it does kind of like bring everything together uh, in terms of like uh, uh, Mort's uh, psychology, what I do not like is the uh, what was it? It was like one of the housekeeper, not the uh, the groundskeepers or something, who like drove by when Mort was talking with Shooter. Yeah, he's like an off-season caretaker. Yes. Uh, He drove by, and then he reports later that when he drove by, like, because Mort sees himself as talking with Shooter, and then the the caretaker uh, notes that it was just uh, Mort talking to himself, but when he looked in the rearview mirror, he saw, like, the shape of another man there, except that man you could kind of see through him, like he was a ghost. Ooh. Uh, yeah? What's your problem? <laughs> I just think it doesn't need it. Like, the story doesn't need the ghost to be there, too. <laughs> well, you're telling me you're gonna make a story without a ghost? <laughs> I mean, if I'm writing a psychological story, maybe. I don't know. Like, it just it just raises questions for me about, like, I don't know. Like, why, why, is, why is the supernatural element coming in here? I mean, I understand, like, there's unexpiated guilt from stealing this dude's story, uh, but also, isn't Mort, by getting uh, viciously shot down by the police as he tries to murder his wife, uh, like, is, isn't that the expiation? Like, did, I don't know, whatever. I do, I do want to say, he is not shot by the police, which is very funny. Oh, wait, what happens? He's killed by the insurance investigator, I'm oh. pretty sure. Oh, that's right. Okay. <laughs> oh, because is... the, the, he's basically a cop. 
yeah, as far as I can tell, he has been vested with the full capability to execute a human being, which is, uh, I did not know it was part of, like, injure insurance investigation. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, that, that, that was a detail I found very, very funny. <laughs> that he can, can just straight up pull a gun on you. I don't know if, mm-hmm. I didn't know that was a part of that. But, uh. But yeah, no, I think I think I think you're uh, I think you're right. I, the introduction of a literal ghost there, Just yeah, one I step too far. It's it's too bad. I do like that the the ghost writes a polite letter at the end though. Yes, Mrs. I am sorry for all the trouble. Things got out of hand. I'm going back to my home now. I got my story, which is all I came for in the first place. It is called Crowfoot Mile, and it is a crackerjack. Yours truly, John Shooter. Now. Here's the goofballery of this. There's the ghost is not named John or like the guy he stole the story from is not named John Shooter. John no. Shooter is the mental construct of his guilt or you know the mm-hmm. the uh, uh uh you know externalization of his internal guilt. So it, but you know he should uh, King should have made a choice here. Is it the ghost of the guy who died in Vietnam? whose story was stolen, is he the one who was here in this letter? Mm-hmm. Or is it John Shooter? Because the name of the story is the one from the guy who died, Crowfoot Mile. That's right. not the name of John Shooter's story. John Shooter's story is Secret Window, Secret Garden. Right? So, like, why? I don't know. This is yeah. like, I feel like, I feel like I'm cinema sensing Stephen King here, but it really is annoying. Well, it just it just just like so. Was this a ghost? Was it what is a psychological projection? Or are we in a situation where like ghosts and psychological projections just meld into each other and then have some like numinous world on the other side where they hang out and occasionally come back to terrify us? Like, what the heck? Yeah, I think that's <laughs> definitely what what has happened. Yeah, that's the only explanation. Yeah. Uh. You want to talk about the library policeman? Uh, what a bad story. Mm-hmm. Have you ever wondered what it would be like if it was written by Dean Kuntz? Well, so you you mentioned this to me before. Mm-hmm. That uh, that uh, this is a Dean Kuntz story. Yes. I don't re- I don't read Dean Kuntz. Uh huh. So, so you're gonna have to walk me through what that means. Okay. So. <clears throat> Uh, the thing about this story that is particularly Kuntzian, uh, is the overall kind of structure. So the, the story is about this guy named Sam Peebles. Uh, also King says in his intro that it, it was intended to begin as kind of a lighthearted, almost comedic, uh, story. So this is why you have a character, I guess, named Sam Peebles. And like the opening line is him complaining about an acrobat who broke his neck. Um, just some real twee stuff. Uh, but anyway, Sam... Uh, gets involved with, like, this uh, uh, mysterious, evil uh, librarian thing that's going on. Um, but the the bigger kind of structure around it is that he has a woman who he employs part-time named Naomi Evans, I think is her name. I know her first name is Naomi. Yeah, Naomi. Um, and she's, like, basically a, a, a typist uh, who works for multiple people around town, like, transcribing letters and, and notes and, like, doing files and things like that. Um, and uh, over the course of the story, as Sam tries to face off against this ancient evil that he's become involved with, uh, he and Naomi, like, 
get to know each other and then like at the end of the story rook uh, hook up as a romantic pairing um and this is notable to me because steve doesn't really write stories that uh take this as a fundamental structure not really about uh uh it's a very easy like uh let's say cinematic way of doing it right like mm-hmm. here are two characters man and a woman usually who end up on uh in some sort of like adventure together and then by the end they have hooked up and and uh they ride off into the sunset together uh, a romancing the stone if you will yes um uh, Steve doesn't really go for that type of plot, but Dean Koontz goes for that again and again and again. Like, it is very typical in a Dean Koontz novel for that to be kind of the engine. Um, and, uh, the other thing that is pretty Dean Koontz-y about this is the, uh, um... I mean, we've talked about this, that Steve has always kind of had a little bit of a moralizing bent to him occasionally when he's not being like an outright nihilist or something. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, Kuntz will be a lot more, uh, uh, I mean, this is even clearer in, I would say, like post like mid 2000s Dean Kuntz, where he, uh, I think, clearly had some sort of born again religious experience and like the God stuff becomes very explicit. Um, uh, but there was always this kind of sense that, uh, the romantic plot, right? The, the, uh, partner plot of these two people meeting each other under, uh, the threat of some sort of like supernatural monster and then, uh, uh, coming together in the end to defeat it, um, was kind of, a it, it's Dean Koontz's version of the like, uh, restoration fantasy, right? Like this is, this is the power of good is like heterosexual coupling and like a healthy relationship. Um, and this is often in Kuntz, uh, contrasted against a villain who is representative of, uh, sexual deviance, um, either in terms of like over appetiting, like an over appetite for sex, like too much sex, like decadence, um, or like straight up, uh, child abuse, um, uh, and things like that. So, like, all of these all of these elements are here in the library policeman as well. Um, mm-hmm. uh, y- they certainly are. Yeah. So, I mean, I you, you said you hadn't read Koontz. It's like, do you, do you need me to elaborate on any more there? But that's just uh, uh, how this thing, whole thing strikes me. Yeah, yeah. So it kind of structurally is a Koontz novel. It's kind of what you're saying. Yes. Uh, and it has I, just I didn't like, know if it was like content, what you meant. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like well, uh, yeah, no content. Not exactly. Um, there is no uh, lovable, super intelligent dog, for example, which is the thing that always shows up in your Dean Koontz novel. But um, that's the only thing I know about Dean Koontz novels <laughs> is that, they, that he loves to have a supernatural intelligent dog. Yeah. And it doesn't get uh, very explicit with the sex stuff, which is a thing that Dean Koontz, especially early on, often did. Huh. Yeah, he was very, he could, like, the, the sex stuff in, like, 80s Dean Koontz is extremely explicit in both directions. Like, uh, villainous, like, sexual exploits are related, and then uh, there are usually extended sex scenes between the uh, main couple uh, that, again, are positioned as kind of this uh, 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 counterpoint to the uh, villainous sexuality of the hmm. villain. Interesting. The uh, but uh, in terms of of mechanically what happens here, right? Guys got to give a speech. We uh-huh. all know we all have this problem, right? This is the ultimate standard issue problem that we all have. You got to go give a talk to the local uh, like the business rotary. rotary club. Yeah, rotary club. And you don't have any good jokes to put in there. Yeah. 
you know, like mm-hmm. you got to do it. And then you talk to your assistant, who's your assistant for two hours a week. And she tells you, why don't you go to the library? And then when you know it, you go to the haunted library mm-hmm. on accident. Shit. Damn. And and it just so happens that you're like, you have some sort of long standing phobia of libraries that you've never been conscious of or recognized. And so you're like, why don't I always go to the library? And then you go to the library and it's the haunted library. And you're like, God damn it. This is why I don't go to the library. This is why I don't go. So, yeah, he goes there. He meets this uh, lady who is evil. She's showing him all kinds of stuff. This is weirdly enough, very similar to what we're going to see in the Wasteland, which is our mm-hmm. our next book, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, the idea that there are things that are geared toward children that are scary instead of good. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're gonna we're gonna see this set almost the exact same like mechanic here because he's walking around this haunted library and, you, and he's seeing he's seeing posters for kids, but the kids don't look happy in the posters. The kids mm-hmm. look sad. Mm-hmm. They're crying. Well, and this is like this is Choo Choo Charlie. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's like a, a the thing that to an adult reads is just like yeah, that's the sort of thing that you might show a child is actually like for the child uh, communicates a kind of. Uh, hidden or uh, deeper more distressing meaning Mm -hmm. you look close at it and you see oh my god they're crying in this photograph Mm -hmm. what what or this this picture what will we do uh so anyway he talks to this lady and she gives him all the things that he needs for his speech and she says you get them for one week otherwise i'm sending the library policeman after you he says okay Mm -hmm. uh and he goes he does all those things blah 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 Lo and behold, the books are gone. <gasps> mm-hmm. Then the library policeman comes after him and tells him he's got to get the books. Uh, and that's that's kind of it. The story spins up into a, like a like a night shift. Mm-hmm. Actually, it kind of just spins up into uh, Salem's Lot. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like, what if Salem's Lot happened, uh, b- but then 30 years later, we returned to Salem's Lot? Some sort of a return to, <laughs> to Salem's Lot. <laughs> uh but and so I mean we can talk about that in a minute. But I do want to talk about the library policeman himself. Yeah, because horrifying story here about what happens to this guy in his youth. Mm-hmm. So that that's one thing. Other thing, library policeman design is cool as hell. Yeah the the way that the library policeman is described uh, and sort of communicated is like like top tier king shit right like this like uh uh really tall uh man with a uh, remarkably pale skin who wears like a black trench coat and like a, a black fedora and like you know is described in a way like without sort of explicitly stating it like this um looks like a man but like doesn't have the mannerisms or the movements of a man uh in that like when he gets close to you you can feel like the temperature go down as uh, uh like the heat is like pulled out of the air around you uh i really like that yeah, he's great. And he like has to duck to go through windows and stuff. Or not windows, but through doors. <laughs> yes. Uh and uh very similar I to the in It Follows when the thing that's following is like that big tall guy. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh similar to that, that kind of uncanny like um uh, something that that's just a little out of place within the world. 
Yeah. Uh, which, which is very cool. Right. Um, the uh, origin of it is not very cool. No. Uh, so the origin is when Sam was a little boy, he went to the library and was approached by a man who turned out to be a pedophile who uh, sexually uh, abused him and raped him in the bushes beside the library. And he yeah. has repressed this memory. He has repressed it and it has, it has emerged. And so what, what's fascinating is it's like this double whammy of a story. Uh, oh, also the library policeman has Pennywise's eyes. Mm-hmm. You know, they're these like silver eyes. But so what's really interesting like this, and you said this uh, at the at the beginning, right? It is it. Mm-hmm. Like the story is it, but with a child sexual assault scene jammed into it. Right. Well, it, it makes like one of the potential like subtexts of it, uh, you know, like in, in the, which where it is about sort of like the generalized ways in which all of the generalized ways in which um, um, children are abused. Uh, and it makes it like text. Yes. And, and, and explicitly describes it. Yes. Um, yeah. I, yeah. I mean, it's it's basically like what if the, the, you can imagine uh, a slightly different Stephen King universe in which um, I'm blanking on Bev. Is it mm-hmm. Bev? Beverly? Yes. yes. In which her father actually assaults her. Right. right. Well, that's that's hinted at. We get very close to it. And it never actually happens. One could imagine basically this exact scene. And then that is kind of folded into the it story. Because mm-hmm. uh, that's what what happens here. Because ultimately, the big story here is that the haunted library was produced by, or is like this emanation of a larval t- tear drinker, mm-hmm. emotion eater, which is Pennywise, right? Similar mm-hmm. to Pennywise, and she kind of comes back every thirty or forty years or something. Yeah, it's it's again, it's like thirty years. Like that's yeah, it's the just number straight given. up Pennywise again. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we get this like long uh, like backstory from uh, like about how all this came to be, because Sam has a uh, dude who he calls Dirty Dave, uh, Dirty Dave Duncan, uh, who comes by his house to like collect his recycling and uh, turn it in and like get money from the recycling because the man is um I mean, he's he's erstwhile unhoused and is currently living in he's a uh, recovering alcoholic and lives in a halfway house outside of town. Um, and it turns out that guy, Dave, uh, back in the 50s and and or early 60s, I think it actually straddles the time period. Uh, he was yeah, his, there. His big alcohol year is 1960. Yeah. So. OK. Uh, so, again, like really close alignment with it there. Uh, he was, uh, a sign painter around town who shacked up with the evil librarian when she first showed up. Her name is Ardelia Lortz, by the way. (laughs) Just want to underscore that because of what a wonderful cartoon name that is. Uh, so he shacks up with her and very quickly realizes that there's like, she's something else, but she like pulls him under her power and eventually she wanted to, like, take him on as a companion. She's like, she's kind of like, you know, uh, the doctor from Doctor Who. It's implied that she's she's like Pennywise. If Pennywise wanted to have, like, uh, a, 
a boyfriend or girlfriend to come along for the ride sometimes. Mm-hmm. Well, he's kind of like Dracula, or she's kind of like Dracula too, right? He's, yeah. He's a little Renfield running around. Yeah. Uh, and so she like she's having him like paint all of these horrible pictures for the library for her and everything. But she's also having a uh, constant demonic sex with him, and also. Uh, like he is uh, just descending further and further into alcoholism as he falls under her influence. Um, and that's kind of like that story. And the reason that that is important is that when he go, when Sam goes to the halfway home uh, to check in with Dave, because he thinks Dave might have taken the the books that he was supposed to return and accidentally recycled them. Um when he goes there, he accidentally walks in on an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting that Dave is a part of. And wouldn't you know it, uh, Naomi uh, is also there because it turns out she is an AA. And that this is one of the ways that they get brought closer together and the way that uh, she gets sort of involved with all the, the, the paranormal chicanery. Um, and so overall, the novel has this really interesting kind of thing similar to what we were talking about with the tommy knockers and uh the the dina um uh to kind of dyad there mm-hmm. uh where this novel is trying to simultaneously work with uh alcoholism and recovery and this is like juxtaposed against the protagonist's experience of childhood sexual abuse um and I'm not saying that, like, there, there's, like, some way to, like, square the circle, but, like, it's it's interesting that, like, both of these things get kind of paralleled as concerns because they don't really connect, ultimately. They're just kind of, like, two things that are happening. Uh, and the monster, for whatever reason, um, uh, is where they both converge. Right. Yeah. I, I mean, yeah. I don't... Like, all of these novellas, these, like, themes don't... They are in the same story, and they mutually inform one another, but they do not resolve one another. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it is a big structure that resolves all of these things. Right. right? Uh, but this doesn't... And this even follows, like, the pattern of it to the point where the big final culmination happens while a storm is going on. Uh-huh. You know what I mean? Like, it's every part. Mm-hmm. It's quite odd. Yeah. I like the ending, that it seems like the big bad has been defeated. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then she, then it like is living inside Naomi. Yeah. In like, as like a little, um, like a infection or a cyst or something. Mm-hmm. And Sam I has to like cool. take it out. Yeah. And smush it with a train. Yes. Steve. Oh, this is the other thing to note here is that this story is set in the Midwest. Uh, and so. <laughs> it's Junction City. Yeah. Junction City, Iowa, uh, which, uh, well, I'll say a little bit more about that later. Um. Uh, but yeah, Junction City, Iowa, which is basically like there are cornfields and trains. That seems to be what Steve knows. Uh, one, one smile, one smile, one, one smile, one minor quibble here. Uh, this is how you know that, uh, Steve is not from the Midwest. Although I will say I am not from Iowa. So maybe this is current there. Maybe this makes sense. At one point, Dave refers to a liquor store as a package store. Which is a straight up New Englandism. Just I'm, hmm. you know, sit- we have package stores in the South. Maybe it's a co- maybe it's an East Coast thing. Maybe it's an East Coast thing. Okay, but yeah, yeah. fascinating. What are they called in the Midwest? A liquor store. Oh, I see. Got it. <laughs> we don't we don't go for the euphemism of like, oh, you go there to get your package. No, no, no. We we yeah. all know. Like we're all sinners. 
you you go to get liquored up, not to not to get your package. Yeah, got it. Uh, <laughs> the anything else to say about that story about the library policeman? Uh, no, I think I it's okay. Mm-hmm. I don't like reading that scene of graphic child abuse. I don't. In, I I didn't enjoy that. I think the story would be better were that uh not as explicit. Yeah, I you know I understand. I think the big mechanism of like one has had you know a childhood abuse that's associated with this, and like that's kind of part of the mechanism. I think that w- would work because that works in it, so we uh-huh. know that that like functions in the story. But yeah, there's something about the way that that is written and how it. I mean, it's Steve going for the gross out. We mm-hmm. know the story. We know the reason and the logic for it and why he does it. Um, but yeah, I think it like. It does not cross a line conceptually for me in the sense of like I whatever you can write whatever you would like to in a, in a novel um, or in a book or in a story, um, but it I, to me it doesn't really add much and it, it truly is like two pages of being like mm-hmm. uh huh where are we going here Steve and ultimately it doesn't go anywhere mm-hmm. you know what I mean other than it just happened yeah um you know this is something that's interesting I meant to bring this up before and I forgot what there's something fascinating about Castle Rock as a zine you know, or a newsletter that we were talking mm-hmm. about earlier because uh it seems like in the late 80s the number one concern talking about what to leave in or, or what to take out of a story so a major concern is censorship and book bannings so we've talked about this before you know in terms of like was Stephen King getting banned you know and the answer to that was yes Stephen King was getting banned but ultimately Stephen King is such a profitable enterprise that uh a lot of the publishing industry kind of rallied behind him uh, it didn't. It didn't impact him in, to, in a huge amount, right? But him, Clive Barker, they actually run through in a, in a, like an eighty-eight or eighty-nine issue of uh, Castle Rock. They run through like here's all the people who are getting removed from libraries, and Stephen King is, of course, one of them. But what's so fascinating is that some zine or not zines, but uh, fiction publication places uh, like magazines uh, at the time start uh, as part of their submission guidelines start saying like. We don't want to publish anything, you know, that's homophobic. You know, so we don't want homophobic stories or we don't want racist stories. And the resolutely from this entire crowd of people, or at least from the publishing arm or the editorial perspective of Castle Rock, everyone there is like, fuck you. <laughs> like, uh, to the point where one of the things that, that I read, one of the op-eds is like, that actually made me want to write a story that was purposely offensive. And it was like, uh, the example was something like, I want to write a story about a gay KKK member in order to kind of spit in the face of these mm-hmm. things. Mm-hmm. Um, so in, that's a genre, um, I don't know, attitude that you and I are familiar with. You know, mm-hmm. like that, that shows up everywhere in literary culture for a long time. But what's interesting is at that Horror Fest 89 that I was talking about, Douglas Winter, who was, I guess, a horror writer, but also wrote mm-hmm. Arts of Darkness, which is like probably... The, the most resonant monograph about Stephen King from the eighties. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like the big culminative book of Stephen King studies at the time. He apparently went to horror fest and he read fiction there and it was a purposely offensive story. Um, and no one in the little write-ups about it talked about the content of the story. They just talked about how offensive it was, hmm. which is funny. So there's something interesting to me going on here in the, in uh, the horror fandom at the time, right? That uh, in response to, and this makes sense, right? You know, we're in um, moral majority times, mm-hmm. you know, 
like we, we've they've been in it for nearly a decade at this point. There is a strong and resolute keep keep the gross shit in there, mm-hmm. right? You will not tell me what what awful things I will not put in the story, which I guess is a fair perspective to have. And in a world in which um, you know the the Reaganite moral majority and the kind of evangelical forces around that are just hammering people left and right, maybe maybe a, a productive perspective to have. Although I can say I do not want to read it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, uh, uh, sort of on on actually that uh, topic, just one thing to point out about the library policeman here, mm-hmm. um, especially uh, with regard to like the the couple plot that I mentioned. One of the fault the uh, the consequences of this, or sort of like the knock ons of all of that, um, is that there is a potential like the the sexual assault that Sam undergoes. Um, becomes a kind of like nebulous uh, queerness about him when he's an adult. Like there are a few lines mm-hmm. early on in the story uh, that suggest that um, people around town have questions about him. Did you catch this? No, I didn't. But he does have this kind of like uh, ambient sexuality about him. So I, I do. Yeah. But I didn't catch the specific line you're talking about. There is there is just a, a one moment where he's think because he's thinking about how he's like in his uh, late 30s or whatever. And he's been unattached the entire time he's been in town. And he's like, people might start to think uh, so some sort of eligible bachelor. Yeah. Right. Um, and so that's that was just a thing that uh, uh, I thought I would like click together. There is that that's another way that this uh, uh, story works is like heterosexuality is healing. Do we want to talk about the sun dog then? Sure. Okay. Um, this story is, in my opinion, maybe the most interesting of the whole collection. Uh, if only because we are seeing, st- like, I, I guess I like Pop Merrill. Like, the Pop Merrill character is interesting because he's a type, he is a version of a character that Steve has written before, uh, but he is doing things with that character that he has not done before. Does that make sense? Yep. Yep. Uh, he's Judd Crandall mixed with uh, uh, a little bit of the guy who runs the garage in Christine. Uh, he's like a, a sort of seedy older man uh, with all of his like schemes and enterprises going on. Uh, but yep. ultimately, Steve allows like he sort of like leans into uh, Pop Merrill being this like old Yankee bastard uh, in a way that he hasn't leaned into that in, in these stories or with these character types thus far. And then we get like what is maybe the the specific highlight of this whole a book for me, which is the scene where Pop Merrill has uh, uh, tricked Kevin, the the boy, mm-hmm. uh, who gets the haunted uh, Polaroid camera. He's tricked Kevin into thinking that he's destroyed the camera, but in fact he's like trying to sell the camera to like paranormal and occult like uh, memorabilia collectors, and so he just yeah, like to a bunch of Neil Gaiman characters. Yes, yes, right. So <laughs> he just like uh, uh, bebops around New England for like uh, thirty pages, meeting with all of these uh, kooky weirdos, and tries to sell them this evil camera. Uh, and all of them, to the letter, are like, no thanks. Like, it turns out that all these people who love to buy stuff that is, like, obviously hoaxes and forgeries and they put all their faith in it, uh, when they get faced with, like, the real deal of the haunted camera, uh, they find it so horrible that they're just like, hmm, one of two things happens, right? They either find it so horrible they don't want it or, like, this is the thing that they think is fake. 
Yeah, it, because the reality of a haunting is too pedestrian. Right. Because <laughs> it doesn't, it, it ultimately, it's just a Polaroid camera where you take a picture and it gives you another moment in time of a, like a little dog who's rude. Yep. Like a rude little dog. Yep. And that's it. Like It's not more, and it is haunted. It's straight up haunted. Mm-hmm. Um. Yeah, uh, what's great about Pop Merrill, too, is that Pop Merrill is Stephen King's character in It Chapter 2. Yes, uh-huh. The, he's, he's playing Pop Merrill. Uh-huh, the guy in the, the antique store. Yep. Yep. Uh, which, is, which is good. Um, the, well, so what's, it, what's fascinating to me is it's that story, right? Like, it, it's, it's um, the kid and the old guy and the, like, machinery that goes back and forth between them, right? To, mm-hmm. like... Uh, around this haunted thing. It's also a dad and a kid story. Mm-hmm. And it's a dad and a kid story that is basically just silver bullet. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. but like the, the filmy version, not actually cycle of the werewolf. Like the, you know, uh, instead of, of Gary Busey, it is, um, it's, it's a dad, right. uh, but it's like, I believe you son, let's do it. Let's <laughs> kill the haunted Polaroid. <laughs> Well, and it's like the, the, the dad and the son uh, grow closer together, not just because the son is like, Dad, the Polaroid you got me for my birthday is haunted, uh, but because uh, Kevin gets uh, wrapped up with Pop Merrill, and then when he goes to his dad, or like Pop Merrill actually, I think, is the one who tells him to go to his dad, um, mm-hmm. and then his dad is like, ah, oh, shit, you've been dealing with him, and then he gets to hear the whole story about how before he was born, when his parents parents were first married his dad uh made a silly his dad was stephen king yeah. <laughs> his dad made a bad choice uh bet some money on a sports match and had to pay way more money than he had and so he took out a loan with incredibly high interest from this uh guy pop merrill in town who is known by everyone to be a a, a seedy character who basically like makes his living by uh, conning summer people in Castle Rock out of their money and uh, lending people in desperate positions money uh, at exorbitant rates. And so then uh, the dad had like this whole secret thing where he uh, was working at a, he was working like double shifts at two jobs in order to make up the money to pay down what he had borrowed from Merrill. Uh, and the his wife, Kevin's mother, never knows about this and like so he and kevin then become closer right it's part of like a a son you have become a man because you have known about my biggest fuck up in history yeah and it's a big fuck up Mm -hmm. and also he just lives stephen king's life of like two jobs you know back-to-back manual labor stuff Mm -hmm. i think that's funny yeah um and that's really a good story i think this is a good story I I really I like the uh so once Pop has the I should say the reason he brings the camera to Pop Merrill to begin with is because he's like hey why does my camera just keep taking pictures of this dog uh even though that's not anything that I'm taking a picture of and so he takes it to Pop Merrill because Pop Merrill is known as someone who um he can like fix things right he can like put a clock back together and and do mechanisms and that sort of thing um and so uh when Merrill uh, switches out the the cameras and has them break one that he's like bought as a a, a ringer um 
I like how the camera starts, like, psychologically manipulating Pop Merrill, where he doesn't realize that, like, he wakes up in the middle of the night, and he's, real. he's like, holding the camera and just, like, taking one picture after another, and the only reason he didn't... The other thing you should know is that the, uh, the... Each picture shows the dog, like, slightly turning around, and then it's, like, moving toward the camera, so if you line them all up, uh, you get, like, the, the stop-motion effect of, of the, like, video film, which is something Merrill does. VHS tapes got invented, and Steve seems really interested in those. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but, uh, uh, so, you know, eventually, like, the thing <laughs> is going is the to... the second time, by the way, in this book that VHSs have been mentioned. Uh-huh. Did you notice that, uh... We had a near exact count of Mort's VHS tape collection yes. in Secret Window, Secret Garden. Yes. More than a thousand VHS tapes. Uh-huh. <laughs> Four thousand books and nearly a thousand VHS tapes. <laughs> uh, uh, so Meryl, like, uh, wakes up in the middle of the night and he's got this camera and he's just like taking the pictures and so the dog should be getting closer and the only reason it doesn't get to the end is because uh he's run out of film uh and then he mm-hmm. thinks he's going to go he he decides he's going to go to um the store to buy some pipe tobacco except when he orders pipe tobacco he says camera film and he doesn't realize that that's what he's doing and i think that's really cool right um, um yeah i think the ghosty part of it works i i think that like running around New England part is really good. I think the the family narrative is good. It's just too long. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it's twenty percent too long. Um, it's got it's got one too many things in it in terms of what I just said. I think any two of the three would be good, but all three makes it kind of drag a bit. It's got the best writing in this collection by far. It like does. No, mm-hmm. no question. I want to read a couple of things here just so people get a sense of it, which you'll notice I for the most part have not had any interest in reading any of the other things, but. Um, this is, this is a funny one. Like legitimately, I laughed at this, uh, out loud. This is on 624 of my copy, which I have an original hardcover, mm. uh, Viking hardcover. Um, he's talking about why, if they should go, he's talking with his friends, Kevin, the kids talking with his friends about if they should go to pop Merrill. He came to this decision in study hall period seven, and when the bell rang, signaling the end of both the study hall and the school day, he had gone to the teacher he respected most, Mr. Baker, and asked him if he knew of anyone who repaired cameras. Not like a regular camera shop guy, he explained. More like a, you know, a thoughtful guy. An F-stop philosopher, Mr. (laughs) Mr. Baker asked. His saying things like that was one of the reasons why Kevin respected him. It was just a cool thing to say. (laughs) A sage of the shutter, an alchemist of the aperture, uh... A guy who's seen a lot, Kevin said casually. Pop Merrill, Mr. Baker said. It was just a cool thing to say. Mm-hmm. So I think that so I, I actually laughed uh, when I was reading. But here's the description of the dog you were talking about. You know, it kind of gives you the dog moment by moment in time. It's on 667. This is a long one, but it's great. The dog's head was coming around the face of the photographer, owner of the shadow, like the head of a dog in the grip of a fit. At one moment, the face and even the shape of the head was obscured by that floppy ear. Then you saw one black-brown eye enclosed by a round and somehow mucky corona that made Kevin think of a spoiled white egg. Then you saw half the muzzle, with the lips appearing slightly wrinkled as if the dog were getting ready to bark or growl, and last of all, you saw three-quarters of a face somehow more awful than the face of any mere dog had the right to be even a mean one. The white spackles along its muzzle suggested it was no longer young. At the very end of the tape, you saw the dog's lips were pulling, were indeed pulling back. There was one blink of white Kevin thought was a tooth. 
He didn't see that until the third run through, or he didn't see that until the third run through. It was the eye that held him. It was homicidal. This breedless dog almost screamed rogue. And it was nameless. He knew that as well. He knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that no Polaroid man or Polaroid woman or Polaroid child had ever named that Polaroid dog. It was a stray, born stray, raised stray, grown old and mean stray. The avatar of all the dogs who had ever wandered the world unnamed and unhomed, killing chickens, eating garbage out of the cans they had long since learned to knock over, sleeping in culverts and beneath the porches of deserted houses, its wits would be dim, but its instincts would be sharp and red. I mean, come on. Mm -hmm. Are you fucking joking? That's like King. That's 70s King. Yeah. That's the Shining right there. Mm Mm-hmm. And, like, he just doesn't come out with it all that often. Yeah. Um, but uh, he's still got it. Steve's still got it. Uh, in terms of uh, uh, other things that this story is in conversation with, um, everything up until this point has been kind of a rerun at things that King has already published. Uh mm-hmm. This one is unique in that it is also a rerun of something that has been written but not published. This is, like, basically a an extended prologue to Needful Things. Uh, which is the, you know, quote unquote, last Castle Rock story. Uh, and that's just gesturing forward briefly, like about a shop where there is a proprietor who gives you things that have weird powers and uh, then like locks you into a whole bunch of uh, chicanery and bullshit in uh, trouble uh, from that point forward. And so there, there's a weird way that this like this whole thing with the magic camera and Pop Merrill is like, uh, uh, circumstantial simultaneity, right? With with what's going to happen in Needful Things, like it's like a preview, uh, in a very different cast. Um, mm-hmm. so I think that's interesting. Well, this is kind of like the, um, the Sun Dog is is more than even a prologue. It's just like a chapter that just is, happens not to be in Needful Things, right? Yeah. Like, in terms of structure, it's like you get an object, the object you thought did one thing, it does another, and there's consequences to that. That's To my memory, that is just needful things. Mm-hmm. And a lot of things that are really relevant in needful things are, in fact, set up here. The fact that Alan Pangborn's uh, wife has died, uh, uh, Polly Chalmers, uh, who runs the sewing uh, and yeah, the, the sewing store uh, on the mm-hmm. same street as Pop Merrill's shop, uh, she's going to be important in needful things. Um and uh, Pop Merrill himself shows up multiple times in Needful Things, uh, not personally because he dies at the end. Uh, the Sun Dog like comes up through the camera uh, after its mind controlled him, and he gets killed. Um, but his memory lives on. He's someone that people in town know about and refer back to. Uh, and then just so you know how this all works out, Kevin captures the sun dog by taking its picture with another Polaroid camera the second it emerges into our our world, or I guess, I don't know, his world, because they're they're different, I suppose. Um, and then we get a Goosebumps ending. <laughs> yeah, an epilogue, even. Mm-hmm. It's flagged as an epilogue. Yeah, it's bad. Mm-hmm. He's in a computer. He gets a computer and the dog's in the computer. Yeah, he tries to write the quick brown fox jumps over the lazy brown dog. And then when he prints the page, it's like the dog is not lazy, Kevin. The dog is hungry and it's coming for you. He's like, Dad, you need to check out my computer. Dad, Dad, <laughs> I'm 16 now, but I still kind of talk like this. <laughs> Uh, I need to ask you a question. How do you think his last name is pronounced? What even is his last name? 
Uh, it's Gardner or something. No, hold on. I'm oh. gonna. Why? Why do I think? I, I don't think? know why you went for the Tommy Knockers. Delavan. But... Yeah. So Delavan, right? Like I think that's got to be what it is, uh, because it occurred to me that the other way you could pronounce that name would be Delevan. So his name would be Kevin Delevan. Oh <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, that's it. That's better. <laughs> Kevin Delevan is great. That's actually my uh, like 1991 white hip hop alter ego, <laughs> Kevin Delevin. I wear a hat sideways. Um, <laughs> yep, but anyway, I think Sung Dog's great. I think that if you if you want to read a story out of here, um, I don't think I could say you need to go like pick this book up. I think that that's a hard recommend to make for the whole thing, mm-hmm. uh, just because it's it's slow going for some of it. But I think the Sun Dog, if you can find that individually, and I think some of these have been published now as their own book. Um, let me see if you can get that. Yes, it it has been published as its own standalone book at this point. Oh, really? Uh, huh, that's interesting because they typically only do that with these when um. When like a film comes out. Yep. Huh. You're right. Hmm. Okay. Um Yep. Sundog I think all of the like the Shawshank Redemption is mm-hmm. so, you know, has been published that way. I think they just split these up at some point to make a little bit more money. Oh, okay. Yeah. Just to be honest. Hmm. All right, makes sense. Yep. Uh other things about the Sundog then? Yeah, because they've done 1922 as its own story now, and that's just the novella that opens full dark, no stars. Huh. Okay. So they've just done that with any of these they thought they could kind of make a little bit more money with. Oh, but they made uh, uh, 1922 into a Netflix thing. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah you're right. The uh, So how are we going to cover these then? When these We're going to check when these got published and we're going to read them all again? Yeah, yeah, I think so. We're, uh, oh, well, just to see in case uh, we got a stand complete and uncut treatment where a whole bunch of stuff got added in. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, what's fascinating here, before we kind of get to our segments, uh is that how much Needful Things is getting promoted. Uh-huh. Like, it's the MCU of Stephen King. It is. Uh-huh. Like, he's constantly being, like, in, in the the 89 issues of Castle Rock I read, in in this, kind of across this thing, he keeps promoing, like, Needful Things is coming, Needful Things is coming, last Castle Rock thing. And I think when we read Needful Things, we'll revisit the uh, little intro here. Um, just because it's some good context to have when we talk about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, does but, your yeah. your hardcover have a preview chapter of Needful Things at the end? No. Oh, okay. Yeah, my paperback does. Like right oh, after the Sun Dog, it's like, hey, by the way, have you heard of Needful Things? Nope. Yeah. Nope. No, I've got the Viking original pressing, hmm. not pressing, but publication. Yeah. Uh, in hardcover. I just didn't know if maybe I... they were promoing it then, because like King does say in that intro that Needful Things is done like it's been written so yep yeah nope they uh nope this is a book that i rescued from that guy who was like getting all the stephen king books yeah at that library sale (laughs) um cool all right segments yeah segments my favorite kingism uh this is the part of the show uh the segment where we talk about some feature of the prose uh maybe like actually explicitly a line uh, a paragraph a phrase uh but even a textual strategy a narratorial strategy that cameron and i think is very indicative of key of stephen king's style um and i'll start here because i'm actually going off 
model a little bit by because the only thing that really stuck out in my mind uh, in reading this was the one that I hated. <laughs> this is the phrase tender little boy cheeks from the sun dog. Ugh. It's like talking about like kids being young and like being outside and like <laughs> it's just I it, it's repeated twice, right? Um, it's repeated twice. Yes. Uh, uh, so this is when Pop Merrill is like telling Kevin about how uh, basically how cameras used to work before uh, these Polaroids came around. And Kevin is like, you know, magnetized by it because he's like, whoa, things used to be different. Um, his eyes were wide, and now he looked like a kid hearing about the old two-holer outhouses, which Pop and all his childhood colleagues, they were almost all colleagues, he had a f- he had few childhood friends in Castle Rock, perhaps preparing even then for life's work of rooking the summer people and the other children somehow sensing it, like a faint smell of skunk, had taken for granted, doing your business as fast as you could in high summer, because one of the wasps, always circling around down there, uh, yeah, always circling around there, down there between the mana and the two holes, which were the heaven from which the mana uh, fell at any given time. Take a notion to plant its stinger in one of your tender little boy cheeks and also doing it as fast as you could in deep winter because your tender little boy cheeks were apt to freeze solid if you didn't. So. A long nostalgic reflection on outhouses and uh, boys butts. And I just, it's one of those things I encountered that phrase and I'm like, how does an editor let this exist? How does an editor let you have the phrase tender little boy cheeks? Uh, yes. And and here is your error uh-huh. in believing there was an editor involved. <laughs> I mean, I just think, I think, I, I do think that uh, that's just done. I think King publishes what he wants to at this point. I know. And uh, you don't mess with the special sauce. <laughs> And I think that at this point, that might be a problem. But we'll learn more about it. We're, you know, I'm curious to dig into. We're about to hit the point where facts on the ground become thin. Mm-hmm. R.E. King. And I'm, I'm curious about us digging into that and seeing what we can learn. Because that is largely like the, the understood thing, right? As King got kept going, the editorial con- control got less. And largely seems to not reappear until Joe Hill starts working with his dad, you know, and giving him feedback on these novels. Mm, mm-hmm. um, I, you know, I have a sneaking suspicion that what makes the run, the kind of like second big run of the big thick King books that are really interesting. Um, the, the JFK novel, the under the dome, that kind of stuff, you know, uh, the 11, 2263 or whatever it is, the uh, King explicitly says like, my son gave me feedback on this novel mm-hmm. and, you know, helped me kind of uh, craft parts of it. And I really think that's what's happening with Under the Dome, too. And so I kind of wonder, like, in that big 15-year period, 20-year period, is is really the truth of it, that that no one was really given too much feedback. Because we know Steve, when left to his devices, um, can go off the rails. Tender little boy cheeks. Yeah, thanks uh my favorite kingism is in fact that the what the big chunk i read mm-hmm. um from the sun dog i think that's just classic king he's coming out he's doing the thing it, it's this kind of hyper description you know hyper description with all this intent built into it mm-hmm. that's what makes the shining work that's what makes uh the dead zone work you know in the parts of that book that really work uh this kind of like highly emotive descriptive language mm-hmm. uh and it's here and it hasn't been here for a while mm-hmm. you know that's just not that wasn't in the dark half 
Um, weirdly enough, it's not really in the stand. Maybe the stand is where a lot of that died off. Uh, because plot was just so, so it was such a beast to kind of keep us dragging across the page. Mm-hmm. Uh, but but real artistry there. Yeah. So, yeah, that's mine. Oh, God, I can't. For, we we absolutely forgot to revisit the fact in the sun dog that the dog is also wearing a bolo tie. So oh, the the dog's wearing a bolo tie. Yeah, yeah. Just to clarify that the the evil dog in the picture is wearing a bolo tie. <laughs> it's a dreadful bolo tie too, because the Kevin can see it like uh, everyone else in the photo or everyone else, his dad and Pop Merrill, uh, because Pop Merrill takes all the Polaroids and has them turned into a VHS, as we talked about. And so they're like, what's that around his neck? There's something around his neck. I got to do my Maynard accent. Hold on. Mm -hmm. There's something around his neck. Mm -hmm. That's got it. That's it. And uh, they can't figure out what it is. But Kevin knows in his heart of hearts what it is immediately because his aunt Gives him a bolo tie every Christmas, and you can't get rid of them even though they are ugly. He calls them a string tie, but it's a bolo tie. Mm-hmm. And he knows intuitively that it's a bolo tie. <laughs> it, this might be the only psychic connection to a bolo tie that's ever been written into literature. Mm-hmm. And it's like he when he, he kept the camera in the drawer where he keeps his bolo ties. <laughs> so there's like, you know, in the same way that the dog is coming out of the picture at the end, I guess the like the camera somehow absorbed one of his bolo ties because he recognizes it as one of his own eventually it's a sympathetic sympathetic bolo tie yeah um uh what in the king of earth is the next segment uh this is where we highlight connections between what we just read and other stephen king works uh and like the the continuity of the king of earth in general uh just to work through these uh, in the Langoliers, the shop is mentioned uh, as a potential uh, agency that might be running some kind of, uh, you know, wild government mind control experiment on all the people on the plane, right? Bob Jenkins is like, say a government agency like the shop was interested in studying the the, the stress uh, of an unusual situation on a common American and that sort of thing. Um, in the library policeman, Naomi at one point is reading a book by Paul Sheldon, uh, from Misery. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the Sundog, uh, Kevin's, uh, younger sister loves horror films and at one point is, uh, implied to be watching or ha- to have watched, uh, the John Carpenter film version of Christine. Um, Kevin also has this kind of weird recurring dream where he is in the place where the sun dog seems to be from originally. It's like this weird, it's like the uh, Polaroid town, I think is what he calls it, where everything is kind of like flat and uh, uh, strange and and not right. Um, Mm -hmm. And while he is there, uh, it is sort of like someone is talking about it he hears like voices he he encounters people who talk to him but they sort of say nonsense but he also like hears voices um and at one point he thinks that he's uh in a town called oatley in upstate new york which was a specific location from the talisman that jack sawyer traveled through hmm. um yeah so I, I think there's also like we're, we're seeing some uh bigger dark tower thoughts going on behind the scenes in uh, the sun dog too. I think there's something happening there. Um, right. Uh, and of course uh, the sun dog as a story takes place in castle rock. Uh, Cujo is eventually mentioned. It would be 
impossible not to write another story about an evil dog in Castle Rock and not have someone, especially Pop Merrill, remember Cujo. Um, Mm -hmm. And then Pop Merrill. And and then recount everyone that Cujo killed. Yes. By name. (laughs) Uh (laughs) Uh-huh. And then uh, uh, I already said Alan Pangborn has showed up here. He was in the dark half. Um, And uh, Pop Merrill himself is the, it turns out he is the uncle of Ace Merrill, from uh the body um so back in uh different seasons uh ace merrill was the bully who was going after all the kids in that story pop merrill turns out to be his uncle and this is like foregrounded in such a a very ostentatious way where pop merrill is like now you might think that someone like my uh nephew who got arrested for robbing that bar down the street by the way uh He's a fool. Like that's how he. That's how he's like brought up mm. as like an example of like something uh, as like what a foolish person is. Uh, but it also updates us on Ace Merrill's entire life. Um, uh, and I forgot to mention it. Uh, but in the library, policeman Junction City is going to show up again. It is going to show up again in Needful Things. Uh, huh. Yep. Uh, and then as a bonus, uh, kind of King of Earth thing, uh, Pop Merrill in his kind of like reflections on his connection with, uh, the various paranormal enthusiasts of New England, uh, mentions a guy who, uh, I think took a photograph in a cemetery in Dunwich, Massachusetts, uh, which is the setting of H.P. Lovecraft's The uh, the Dunwich Horror, uh, and that man, uh, then went mad and was confined to, uh, Arkham Asylum. Which is another H.P. Oh. Lovecraft thing. And Batman's there. Yep. The, no, no the, uh, it, it is much better than the photograph one, because uh, you're combining the two. Mm-hmm. The thing that sends, makes that guy mad is he gets a haunted trumpet and plays it in a graveyard. <laughs> I think, I think that's a, a reference to the Dunwich Horror. I think that's something that happens oh. in that story, maybe. Oh, okay. It's been a long time yeah. since I've read that story. But the the very idea, the haunted trumpet was very funny to me. No, the haunted trumpet also, like, I I didn't bother looking it up. So someone out there probably is like, Michael, how could you forget? Why would you attribute that to Lovecraft? But um, the haunted uh, trumpet thing, like, triggers, I've read something about that before. Like, that seems like another maybe reference. Uh, Yeah. Golden trumpet. Mm -hmm. Uh, Cool. Uncle Stevie's mixtape, where we talk about and review all of the songs that have shown up in the thing that we just read. Uh, so, Cameron, you get the first one. I got Wilson Pickett's In the Midnight Hour. It's kind of like a framing song for the whole deal. It's pretty good. Uh, three stars. Mm. It's fine. Uh, I have uh, Evie Sands' Angel of the Morning. Uh, this is a song that, uh, Craig Toomey's abusive mother is con like she listens to it on repeat. Um, it is also a song that has some, uh, famous cover versions in particular, uh, Juice Newton did a cover version that shows up in a, uh, real show stopping moment in it chapter two, when like the, the gross leper monster pukes all over Eddie Kasprak. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's one of the most baffling things that I have ever seen in a major motion picture. Uh, and people have speculated that that in it chapter two is a reference to this aspect of the Langoliers. I do not think that, that is it's confirmed because that would be one of the most bizarre, uh, choices of reference ever. Well, I'm going to say that if there's a word that I would use to describe that movie other than indulgent, it would be bizarre. Mm-hmm. So uh, that that could be also abusive mother. Yeah. 
Right. Not the same kind of abusive, but still. So maybe, I mean, I don't know, maybe. Yeah. That's why people kind of make that connection, I think. Uh, anyhow, right. uh, this is a weird song because despite all of the cover versions of them, uh, of it, uh, they all tend to sound kind of the same. So uh, this is just not as like orchestrated or produced as like the Juice Newton version. It's still kind of a, a I don't know, emotional ballad. So I'll, I'll give it three stars. Hmm. Uh, Ed Ames, What Color is a Man? Kind of a, a rockabilly style song that's about maybe civil rights? I couldn't really tell. Uh, it's, it's fine. Three, two stars. Okay. Who cares? Uh, Roger Whitaker, The Last Farewell. This song is horrible. This is like half a star. Half a star? It's, it's like, uh, a, like adult. 70s contemporary and it's like a man singing about a ship that's going to england it's it's just not good it's just not you heard it here folks it's just not good Mm -hmm. well it's not good in the way where it's like i don't even know like the people who like to listen to this i don't know what they like about it that's not to say that they don't it's just like there's there's no uh uh, communication across the epistemological boundaries there (laughs) Uh, you're literally listening to it and saying, this doesn't sound like anything to me. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so how many stars? Oh, half a star. Mm. And uh, I have just Guns N' Roses, the entire band. And we have now, because uh, occasionally you have to rate a whole band for Uncle Stevie's mixtape. And what's kind of uh, notable about that is that I, we've set a baseline. And the baseline is CCR is three stars. Mm-hmm. So I now have to evaluate, is Guns N' Roses better, worse, or equivalent to CCR? And so because of that, I'm going to have to say Guns N' Roses, the entire band, is two and a half stars. Okay, yeah. Do we want to Because kids love it. There's a long diatribe about people liking Guns N' Roses just based on their name. In the uh, in uh, the library, police. It's a uh, uh, Steve getting angry that they're uh, stealing all of his Dark Tower iconography before he can get the books out. Well, that's also yeah. Who who shows up in the wasteland? Is it uh, Motley Crue? Maybe. Uh, no, no, no. It's um, um, ZZ Top. So our our final segment here is going to be uh, about you folks, about you, dear listener. Uh, this is the part of the show where Cameron reads uh, reviews from uh, Apple Podcasts of Just King Things. And if you leave a five-star review that is also funny, uh, then there's a chance that Cameron will read it in the future. And those reviews help us a lot. So uh, take it away, Cameron. Uh, there's some great ones here. So yeah, leave us, leave us five stars and, uh, leave a little text and I'll do it. Um, (laughs) there's some very funny ones here. Uh, so it's, it's hard to, hard to, uh, hard to choose here. Uh, 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 there's too many choices, Uh, too many. There are too many choices. I, cause I can only, I only want to do like two here. All right. So this is from upright virgin. (laughs) Uh, the show that finally got me, that got me to finally listen to Bob Dylan. I love this show so much. I got into Bob Dylan to finally understand why they hate him. Five stars. Uh, that's funny to me. 
Um, I'm not gonna say the, the I'm not gonna say the username out loud because I don't want to, uh, uh, I you know just for privacy sakes. Five stars. This podcast <laughs> so got wait, me late. Hold on, you're you're uh-huh. okay with putting upright virgin on blast, but whatever this well, is, you won't you won't. Well, read the it. content is why I won't. Okay, I don't want to. I don't want to. You know, secrecy might be important. Okay. Mm-mm. Five stars. This podcast got me laid. I met my girlfriend through the Range Touch Discord server, so thanks to us for getting us laid. <laughs> there you go. I'll do one more. Well, hold on. Between that bunny. and Upright Virgin, we're getting the real breadth of human experience here. I just want to point that out. Yeah, from virgins to the laid, Just King Things is for everybody. <laughs> that That's actually what the stand should have been about. It shouldn't have been Agents of Chaos versus Agents of Good. It should have been virgins, not virgins. <laughs> then we would have seen what was happening. Although that kind of was part of it. Yeah. There was a, there was a prominent virgin. Oh, God. You know, in the cast. That's uh-huh. not common. Uh, one more. This is from a sleepy bunny. Do it for Steve. From a lifelong Minnesotan, they're dead right about Dylan, but dead wrong about Surfing Bird. Impeccable book podcast otherwise. Five stars. I don't even remember what you said about Surfing Bird. I don't know. Yeah. Is that bird is the word? Uh, Yes. Fuck that song. <laughs> there star. we go. Okay. <laughs> Uh, Take that, a sleepy bunny. <laughs> go to bed. So yeah, if you uh, uh, have something to say about the show, we love to hear it, and we love to hear that particularly in the reviews, because uh, any reviews that you leave on your podcast platform of choice uh, help uh, promote us. They like surface us in, in the little algorithm, and all of the promotion that we do, we do ourselves uh, on our own shows or on guest spots on other people's shows. We don't pay for advertising in any other way, uh, so really it's only by us yelling about ourselves and you also yelling about us uh, that we spread it all uh thank you so much uh leave those reviews uh five stars make them funny thank you again uh next time we will be reading the next dark tower book we will be discussing uh, 1991's the dark tower 3 the wastelands my favorite dark tower book i don't know if it's my favorite dark tower book like i've talked about before and i'm sure i'll i'll actually probably mention this in a little bit more depth during the Wastelands episode, uh, is that part of the impetus for doing this show, one of the several things in the mix is that I read all of the Dark Tower like a year before we started the show. And uh, I think uh, it, my my hierarchy is probably Dark Tower 7 and then Wasteland. So it's pretty high up there. Mm-hmm. I actually like the, the final book a lot. But yeah, so for that, I believe in the last episode, no, in the bonus episode, which you can listen to at patreon.com slash range touch. I've already talked about it. We've got Nick Weiger on the show talking with us about um, uh, Langoliers, his childhood memories of Stephen King and his, uh, you know, all that kind of stuff that we do on the show. If you want to check that out, patreon.com slash range touch. It's $5 a month. Pretty good deal, if you ask me. You know, it's uh, less than a latte a month for a whole bunch of cool stuff, including bonus episodes of other shows that we do, the Range Touch Monthly Podcast, all kinds of stuff going on over there. Uh, It really helps us out. Uh, It supports the show. Uh, We have editing support now uh, from uh, Jordan Mallory, who is uh, our, um, I forget what we we are calling, uh, um, uh, an an associate producer. I forget what our title that we gave to Jordan. Consulting producer. Consulting producer. Uh, and so the Patreon helps us do that, helps us uh, um, do that. So shout out to Jordo and shout out to everyone who's already supporting. 
Uh, I think in that Patreon episode, I said that next month we're going to have Patrick Klepek on the show, but we, uh, or we were going to try to, but we're kind of running into the holiday season. We're just going to make that a little bit hard. So we have uh, pivoted since then. We're going to save the Dark Tower film for the Dark Tower, for Wizard and Glass, Dark Tower 4. Mm-hmm. And part of my logic for doing that is that Patrick Klepek has notoriously said many times that that's his favorite book, mm-hmm. Dark Tower 4. Mm-hmm. So allow us to talk about that and the Dark Tower film all at one time. Uh, with Patrick, which will be great. So we're going to save that. And so instead, Michael and I, next month in the Patreon bonus episode, we'll be talking about Salem's Lot, the original Toby Hooper TV movie. Is it a TV movie? Question yes, mark? it is. It was a miniseries. Okay. The first miniseries. Not not the ah, first miniseries so we... ever, but the first King miniseries, uh, of which there have been subsequently many. Yeah, so that'll be really good for us, kind of fit in some of the other stuff we've been doing. And I'm curious to see it. I don't think I've seen that since I was like 12 or 13 and I might not have even seen the whole thing then I might only seen like a half. Mm -hmm. So I don't have strong memories of it. I'm curious about it. Um, and excited. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, I am interested in going back to the wastelands because as I said, it is my favorite dark tower book and I am notoriously not that hot on the dark, dark tower generally. So I'm, I'm just sort of, as with many things in the show, I'm sort of curious uh, in seeing how my reaction to that book may have changed since I read it when I was a teenager. And is it going to remain my favorite Dark Tower book, or is it somehow going to fall from grace? Uh, Or is it somehow actually going to rise in grace and justify all of the Dark Tower for me forever? Uh, We'll only know next month. I think you're going to come around to my side. I think you're going to become like a like a, a Dark Tower 7 defender, mm-hmm. as I am. Mm-hmm. I mean, I would not say that that feels out of character for me. Knowing myself and knowing already what happens in that book, I could see how this comes together. <laughs> I, there, yeah, there's just, it, I, it, it, I don't know. I did not like it when it came out, and I really liked it on the reread. So um, mm-hmm. e- even with all the things that people don't like about it, which they are very valid and not liking. But anyway, okay, well, I think that's it. We'll be back in a month. This is coming out what? In January? Yeah, coming out in January. No, no this, this is, is coming out in December. This is coming out like in two weeks. <laughs> wow, we're behind. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, so this is coming out in December. I hope everyone, uh, for, for some people, your holiday's already begun. For other people, your holiday's upcoming. I hope you have a nice holiday season into the new year. And uh, after this episode, I guess we'll see you in the new year. It'll be 2023. It'll be another year of just King Things. Wow. Wow. Well, until next time. All right. I'll let you in the episode now. Until next time. Do it for Jim Jims. <laughs> <laughs>